Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, I am very happy to be back. I was on a wee bit of vacation, of a vacation, if I don't say so myself. So uh, yeah, nice. I was as well. Interesting. So, <laughs> so it's nice to be back here talking to you, Crystal. Um, we got a really interesting show to look forward to. We have uh, Fashakir, who was Bernie Sanders' campaign manager. Wowzers. That's a big get, if I don't say yeah, so myself. for sure. Um, but he's also doing this amazing new venture called More Perfect Union, which is basically like investigative reporting for labor issues, for workers' rights, for, you know, things of that nature. So um, he's done some amazing videos that have gone viral. Yeah. Uh, we want to talk to him about that, talk to him about everything about this new project that he's doing. It really is what CNN should be doing, what all the news outlets should be doing. It's That's what he's doing. such an important addition to the media ecosystem. I cannot possibly understate. I mean, one of the things that we really realized in the Bernie Sanders campaign is like, holy shit, the mainstream media is so goddamn influential still. Still, they say jump, and the Democratic base, at least, is like, how high? What can we do to combat that? Well, Faz has come up with, you know, a piece of the puzzle here in creating alternative media that does real journalism that, you know, isn't about hyperpartisan horse races, just actually about the struggles of working people and lifting up those voices. So, yeah, that's exactly very right. excited to talk to him about that. And I'm sure we'll have some questions for him that may be a little challenging about Biden and Bernie and all of those things. But we'll get to all of that. Par for the course. That's what yep. we do here. So anyway, um, but there was something that I wanted to talk about in our little intro that we got here. We yeah, have um, this is interesting. Yeah. So Russell Brand's a really interesting character. Now, I have to say, initially, he, he wasn't my cup of tea initially. Hmm. Um, and I, if I had to speculate why that was, a little more hippie-ish for my tastes. Yeah. You know? He's got um, the, the spiritual vibe. Yeah. This, and, you know, I was more like, I came from the, like, I'm, a, I'm an atheist, you know, <laughs> school of thought, not like the... Let's feel all the energy, school of thought. I know that's wildly unfair to Russell. Russell, I love you, man. I'm just, I'm just trying to explain to people why I was initially sort of not a, a Russell stan. Um, but I actually, I like him now. And the reason I like him is because he is, he's genuine in being like that. Like when he was younger, he was a wild man. He, you know, a drug addict, sex addict, had all sorts of problems. And now he sort of went on a genuine, genuinely spiritual journey and he's come to a place where he seems more balanced and more centered and um, he's doing a, you know, a great podcast, great uh, talk show. He's talked to a lot. And I think he's really good. This is the main point. I think he's really good at going back and forth with people who I might despise politically. Yeah. Even bordering on, they're bad actors. You know what I mean? Like, they're not even genuine. Yes. Not even somebody who genuinely disagrees with me. honest actor right. who genuinely has different political beliefs. But yes. he is like, oh, I'll fucking talk to anybody. I'll yeah. talk to any of them if I find them interesting enough. So he had on Candace Owens on his show and they ended up getting into it, which is rare for him. Usually, like, he talked to Ben Shapiro. who was very cordial, even though they disagreed the whole time. This may be not as much. Guys, go ahead and run that video. The first one. Look, I agree. But towns. do you not think this individualistic culture is in itself destroying the principles at a spiritual, human level of community? Do you not think when people see this economic inequality, this disparity, I'm not talking about hating your little rich friend friend Lola Bell or whoever it was you went around to see her nanny and were infuriated by but thought oh well maybe one day I'll have my own nanny do you not think that economic inequality creates in a human being a sense of injustice of unfairness because people do you know what Candice 90% of people that are rich do you know why they're rich they was born rich okay, I can tell you something I think that economic disparity creates that <laughs> feeling but a, a fundamental understanding in economics can do help you do you know that, that? that the most people that are rich are born rich it's not like there's a tiny minority 
majority of people that are like you that come from a poor background and manage to overcome it. And this is what's a, pro- a problem I've noticed with a lot of great people is they sort of believe that their greatness is something that can be replicated. And I don't think it, it can. can. I see. So I believe in the individual. You don't. That's I our fundamental differences. But the primary goal of the individual should be to serve the community. I, I, I do not believe that the primary goal of what an do you think the primary I, I goal think that of the once individual an individual be, feels that they the have individual. served so you're, you just, you're discounting the human spirit I'm the not human, discounting yes, it, it I'm saying that's all let there is you, let me ask you, a, no there's not in, in, in a humanity, think of animals in the wild, you don't even have to go to humanity, we can just think about animals in the wild, what is our human instinct okay, are you going to make sure that everyone on this block is fed before you feed yourself, do you go around and say, hey have you had breakfast this morning, Listen. hey have you had breakfast this morning Hey, you, or are you going to make sure you're eating? And if you have, and if you have an excess, of course you're going to do the human the human condition, and our incentives are going to be to want to help are you people. Mental? Once excess, the richest fifteen people on the planet have got as much accumulative wealth as the poorest five billion. But you're that's talking, an excess. Oh, no, 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 that's no, no. An excess. Okay, okay. Excuse me. First and foremost, you're talking about literally. Point zero 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 one percent of the world is what Let's you're talking get about. Okay, Let's but get and, and, and what are and what are they preaching? What do they want? Socialism, so that nobody else has the opportunity to become what they've become. They're the ones that are They're pushing, pushing forward. socialism. So, yes, That's they not are. Well, are you kidding? George Soros doesn't want socialist policies. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, doesn't want socialist policies. They oh. want to make sure that no one else has the opportunity Look, to get to where they got. We need to discuss our language, me and you, because we do. Here's what my socialism looks like. Take Jeff Bezos's wealth from him, except for a reasonable stipend for him to live on. Something like you know, he can have ten million a year or something. Tax Amazon to the ground. So that so so <laughs> the rich people pay for eighty five percent of all of the taxes. You think they should pay for even more? Do you think that that's that's fact? That that's fact. Yes. Don't look at the, me. With, the, I'm uh, telling that's you, fact that's a fact. Face. The top ten percent pay for 85% of all the taxes. When people say they're going to raise their taxes more, I'm just like, how much more? Should we just say, just pay for all the taxes? A lot to say about that. Yeah, I'll let you add it because I know you wanted to respond to that last part first. Well, first of all, this trope that she's using about the rich people paying all the taxes, this has been trotted out by Republican after Republican for years and years and years, and it is wildly misleading. First of all, they only look at federal income taxes. They don't look at payroll taxes, which, of course, wage earners much more so than wealthy individuals are likely to pay. They don't look at sales taxes. They don't look at any of that. They also don't look at the fact that inequality is at such incredible heights that, of course, in any sort of just system, rich people should pay wildly more than they, working class people. They like, it make just completely almost all that. the money. They right, make almost so, all the money. So if they're paying 85% of the taxes, maybe they're underpaying taxes. Exactly, exactly. But again, even within that framework, it's, it's wildly misleading yeah. because you leave off the table all of the taxes that working class people are more likely to pay. So there's that. I also, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as... She was talking and and Russell says, you know, most people who are rich are it's because they were born rich. That's certainly true. The other way to become rich in America predominantly isn't by building a product or a service like Amazon that for all its problems, lots of people find extraordinarily useful. No, most of the billionaires are financial engineers. They're not doing anything like good or productive or like hard work, struggle to the top, bootstrap type of thing. They're actively making society worse. And that's the other path to riches. Candace herself 
is a perfect example of the problem of the American meritocracy, because basically how has she been able to amass fame and wealth? It's by serving as a spokesperson to kind of like, you know, make cooler and younger and hipper these old, terrible Reaganite ideas. So there's a lot going on there. Okay, yeah, there is. So let me first, I just want to give some some numbers here so everybody understands that Russell's correct when he talks about, you can't talk about wealth without talking about generational wealth and without talking Mm -hmm. about inheritance. So the wealthiest 10% of families have inherited $367,000 adjusting only for inflation. So that's quite a big head start. Yep. The wealthiest 1%, um, around 41.4% of the wealthiest 1% say they have inherited some money. So, and you could see the same thing, by the way, when you look at uh, race statistics, the average white family versus the average black family, and there's very little generational wealth that's been built in black families because of the history of uh of segregation and official second-class citizenship. So it is absolutely the case that if you're wealthy, you're very likely to have inherited some amount of money that's substantial. So that's that's the first point. The second point, let me give you some more here uh, numbers. 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. These are half of workers make $30,000 a year or less. Workers. So they're working for a living. She's trying to pretend like we live in a meritocracy. People could work full time and not make enough money to survive. Mm-hmm. We don't even have a living wage as the minimum wage in this country. Mm-hmm. You could be doing everything right by the book, busting ass and still not making enough money to survive. And at the same time, at the exact same time, the richest three Americans hold more wealth than the bottom 50% of the country combined. So that's like over 165 million people. Three people have more than 165 million people. I mean, it's just... It's so out of whack. Where right. do you even begin? And the thing that I think is most important to talk about here is um, her straw man, because that's yeah. what she does. That's all she does. And and I'm astounded at how sloppy she is and how bad she is at her job in the sense that she's just a lazy propagandist. Uh, one of the arguments she uses against Russell is something I've heard a million times, and anybody who's been online and is a leftist has heard a million times. If you end up talking to a, a libertarian or, or a conservative. Um, they hit you with, do you even economics, bro? <laughs> do you, yeah. you don't even get basic economics. It reminds me of actually one of my favorite tweet of all time, which is like, there's this graph and there's, and somebody says, you see where this line meets this line? That's why the poor should starve. Right. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's, that's basically the gist of it. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the point that has to be addressed is she says, and what do the rich want? The rich want socialism. Oh, my God. You think Jeff Bezos? Socialism, by definition, is the workers' Uh, own means of production. That would take away all the power from the billionaires. Look at what, I mean, look at what he does when anyone even thinks about forming a union. Yeah, right, exactly. Let alone, You think he wants to give up, give Democratic control to his company, to all the workers? That's literally the last thing he would ever want to do. Putting a Black Lives Matter banner on the front of your website is a long, far cry from anything approaching socialism that part made me want to just totally lose my mind the idea that billionaires want socialism is beyond absurd and so bananas i love when she says to him the difference is i believe in the individual you don't (laughs) he didn't say that at all no one one of the people who's like you know an idol of mine is tiger woods why because he individually was able to become the best golfer in the world and you know he won the u.s open on a broken leg and all this i'm all about the individual 
But that doesn't mean you can't set up an economy that's fair and just to everybody. Is some extent or some degree of inequality, wealth inequality and income inequality, is that going to exist within this economy in any economy? Absolutely. The question is, how much is acceptable? How much is okay? How much makes sense? When CEOs, they used to make 20 times more than the average worker in the company. Now it's like 350 right. times the average worker. Well, and she also uses this argument that, you know, basically the billionaires have to keep all of their wealth or else they're not going to be motivated to work, which is like, so that's, that's got to be the, that's got to be the thing that's inducing people to go out there and create and go out there and, and do their best. I mean, it's wildly immoral in a society as wealthy as the U.S. or the U.K. that you have people going without their very basic needs met when, you know— We can meet them. We can meet those needs. we can (laughs) easily meet those needs. And you know what? There's still going to be plenty of motivation to continue to work hard and make your way to the top of the fake meritocracy that rewards basically the the greatest thefts and criminals and thieves and grifters of all time— Candace again. The hardest worker I ever met in my life was living at the poverty line. He worked three jobs. His name was Kevin. I met him in high school. He was an amazing guy. And I watched this guy bust his ass and barely be able to pay the bill. So don't tell me we live in a meritocracy. If anything, we live in an anti-meritocracy. It is not the harder you work, the further you go. You can be the hardest worker in the world and still live in poverty. That can actually happen. So let me show. There's one more clip here. I want to show that. And then I want to give everybody my overarching theme here. Okay. Like some of my impulses, Candice, are I just want to I just want pleasure and fun and I don't care about anything except myself. That's in me. Mm-hmm. That's in me and it's strong. But I personally think I don't feel good when I live that way. There are consequences for me and there are consequences for other others. So I kind of want to live within systems that um, encourage collective and communal values that instead theft. of we're talking about theft no we're not talking about demanding theft. that people give up their stuff as theft but it sounds pretty when you say listen encourage you. incentives no when the government comes and demands not, you that i give bring, to someone no, else I, listen that's you. Theft. you keep translating what i'm saying I'm into you. no you're not helping me you're, <laughs> he's you're talking tra- about theft you're translating what i'm saying into rhetoric that you can argue with creating straw men of my words as we go it's so you can kick them that over no that, that that's I'm not saying that. I'm say I'm not saying I'm not espousing the values of big government. I'm not saying that there's any political party that currently exists that in any way represents my views. I'm just asking if in politics, both personally and collectively, there's room for a little more compassion and love. And whilst I agree with your uh, that the uh, that there is something easy to fetishize about mm. individual achievements in your own case or wherever we see greatness, we can't take that example of the ability of the individual to overcome adversity to condemn people that haven't been able to like where is there a role then for compassion and kindness i'm not saying this not a big politics. government and take away not your- in politics so my thing is that the, the conversation could be should be completely separate okay that is hilarious like <laughs> you gotta take all these political ideas and just don't involve them in politics right they're inherently Just political of course you're supposed to. the billionaires are super generous because of course they will be just look at the evidence it's like what are you talking about the other thing she she does this thing of like you're talking about theft oh you're talking about theft <gasps> think of how radical a position it is to actually what she's saying there is literally all taxation is theft that's yeah right that's an ayn rand position. i mean that is it's- a super fringe 
radical denying ideology basic, basic social contract she's saying there is no such thing as a social right. contract at that all that means like we're basically not going to exist together in a society and do anything collectively together right. we're going to have private we're going to privately fund roads if you can't afford the fire department forget about it forget about getting health care if you can't afford it i mean no public goods whatsoever that is an insanely radical position. Unserious is and what it is. It's totally unserious. And yet she's trying to straw man him like he's the radical for saying, yeah. hey, you know, we could probably like do a little better by people and meet their basic needs. And by the way, ironically, she actually supports theft because she's saying all these people who work for a business owner do all the work. And if they want to underpay you like crazy mm -hmm. and take all your surplus value, they're going to do that. Yeah, total and she's exploitation. Totally fine with that. Wage theft, I'm going to guess, is not a big priority for her. Exactly. Only, you know, any sort of taxation. She, Pretty wild. She would be the type to say, like, well, you just work harder. If there's an issue, just work harder and, you, and you'll get ahead. You'll get that promotion. But there's always been a giant gaping problem with that, which is, let's say everybody in the world took that advice. Everybody in America took that advice. They w woke up tomorrow. They went to work. They tried their hardest. They did the best they possibly could. Is it possible for every worker in America to get the promotion? No. There's only going to be some tiny percentage that can get the promotion. So obviously, if everybody does that, it's not like it's going to lead to, you know, a fruitful result for everybody. Some people are just going to work hard and still not make enough money to survive. It's total nonsense. So my main, my overarching takeaway here is this. The big fallacy that people like Candace Owens believe in is that your market value is the exact same as your human value. Mm -hmm. Those things are interlinked. They're the same thing. So if you're not providing something on the marketplace, well, you're totally useless. You're, you don't even really count as a human being. And I can't stress this point enough. People who made it to the top did not just work harder. That's not a thing. There's 2,153 billionaires in the world, and they have more wealth than the bottom 4.6 billion people wow. who make up 60% of the population. Wow. Billionaires have more than 60% of the population. They didn't just work harder. They're not just better than you. They're not superhumans. They haven't figured shit out that you haven't figured out. The system is rigged. The system is broken. And idiots like that, she doesn't even believe in a basic social contract, which means she doesn't even believe in civilization. Right, right. That's exactly right. There's also an irony to, you know, Candace and Turning Point, Charlie Kirk, all these people. They really rose because of Trump. I mean, they've really, you know, come to their own because of Trump. And Trump in 2016, it was supposed to be like economic populist. And I'm looking right. out. I'm for against the, outsourcing. Yeah. And yeah. I'm looking out for the forgotten man and woman who's lost their jobs overseas. And, you know, I'm actually for raising the minimum wage. All of this bullshit. Right. And um, it's pretty interesting. It's it's a per perfect case in point of how Trumpism just collapsed down to like whoever was willing to be the most shamelessly supportive of him, no matter what he did. Yeah. Because she truly, I mean, she's parroting these Ayn Rand, Coke industry talking points um, that have been around in the conservative movement forever. Totally old school, radical libertarianism. Movement conservatism, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a younger, hipper package of these terrible old ideas. Nothing to do with anything different economically that Trump claimed to support in 2016. It's just amazing how quickly they revert 
right back to those corporate libertarian talking points. And that's, you know, that's part of why she's so useful is because she's willing to shamelessly propagandize these values, which are very, very good for the wealthy, very, very good for corporate America and very, very bad to um, most people, including significant chunks of that Trump base. She loves defending Amazon. It's a mask off moment. It's a mask off moment is what it is. She's letting everybody know I'm Rush Limbaugh, but I'm a young black woman. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I really, I wholeheartedly believe that those, you know, Turning Point USA type people, the only reason they're anything, the only reason we're even talking about them is because there's colossal amounts of big money behind them. Oh, yeah. And there's, you know, they so oh, much Facebook useful. advertising and all this stuff. So the game is sort of rigged because, so, like, I came up on YouTube and, you know, TYT helped me when I became part of their network. But other than that, that was it. And it was like real bootstrap stuff. They're the opposite. They're actually welfare cases in a way. Because they're just oh. getting pumped out there no matter what, and they're backed by big money from from gigantic industries because they're pushing corporate propaganda. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. And so, anyway, I think I do think Russell did a great job there. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, I believe in talking to people who think differently and engaging with them, and I believe in persuasion. I believe on going on platforms where maybe not ev- not everybody agrees with you. But do you think it's useful? to have a debate with someone like Candace Owens, who is not really an intellectually honest actor. Yeah, so um, I'm mixed on that, but I lean in the direction of if it's not worth it because I don't believe her. I don't think she even means what she's saying. I don't think she necessarily believes anything. Yeah. So if there's somebody who sincerely disagrees with me on stuff, yes, I, I think it's it's okay. You should, you can discuss with them. You can debate stuff. You can even have points of agreement. Agree where you agree, disagree where you disagree. But yeah, I mean- we got to keep it real. There's some percentage that's TFG, as in too far gone. They're never going to change their mind ever, no matter what. And then there's some percentage that are just grifters and not telling the truth and liars. Yeah. Now, I the difference is I don't judge anybody who disagrees with whatever my standard happens to be on that. No. So, like, with Russell know. doing that, I'm not like, oh, how dare you talk? No, fact, of course. I, I think of, it's good. I respect it. No, it's good. He did it he with Ben it. Shapiro, and he did a great job. He did it with Candace Owens, and he did a great job. I mean, he's clearly apoplectic at her ideas, and he's rightly acting like that. And it would be yeah. a different story if you bring on somebody and then you play patty cakes with them when you disagree with them 85% of the time, then you're doing a disservice. Because you have to disagree where you disagree and agree where you agree. You can't only talk, let's say you have 20% agreement with somebody, you can't focus on the 20% agreement 100% of the time and then ignore the 80% disagreement. Right. And there are many people who've done that or, or, you know, over time, and I really disagree with that. So it's all about, you have to, you know, I'm all in favor of open dialogue and free speech and discussion. Mm-hmm. It just has to be accurate. So like the Ro Khanna thing, when you talked to Bill Crystal recently, everybody was giving him a hard time for that. Yeah. We weren't giving him a hard time and saying, don't you dare talk to Bill Crystal. We were saying, if you're going to talk to him, accurately portray him. So when you say he's a big defender of democracy, bullshit, he's a fucking war criminal. Yeah, was right. one of the architects of the Iraq war. Fuck out of here with that. He's out there so, now advocating for Afghanistan forever as exactly. one example. Yeah. So yes, it's, it's all about anybody could talk to whoever they want. I'm not going to judge you for that. It's about handing the conversation responsibly and reflecting the reality of the person that you're talking to. Yeah. And here's a great example of, I think, even though I think Candace, I don't think she means it. I think she's full of shit and all that stuff. I respect that Russell was like, I'm going to go ahead and do this. That's basically how I feel about it, too. For for me personally, I don't really care to engage with someone who is never willing to be thoughtful, honest. Yeah, I want to have a real conversation, a real one. Yeah, because, you know, it doesn't matter what you – Candace is just there 
to spin, to do propaganda, to win the point. Right. She has no interest in having a back and forth. Whereas you can tell Russell has a different orientation. He's willing to cede her points. Yeah, mm -hmm. Sometimes he's willing to be very charitable to her in, in many ways in terms of his interpretation of what she's saying, where she's just looking, let me win. How do I win this point? Right, yeah. Not let me be accurate, not let me be fair, not let me engage. And so, first of all, you're at a disadvantage if you're playing two different games, number one. And number two, again, for me personally, I just, I just don't, have any interest well, in just, engaging with someone who's so dishonest. Here's the, but here's the big thing. It just has to be, the person has to be interesting to me. And when I look at what Candace is doing, it's Rush Limbaugh, who's a young black woman. I'm not interested in that. Right. I'm not interested in engaging with that when, like you said, the engagement is not a real engagement. Yeah. You're talking to a robot who's spewing back talking points that there are well rehearsed. It's not a real conversation. Yeah. So I think that's the overarching thing in my mind is like, Am I interested in this? Is this actually fruitful? Now, again, I'm not going to judge others for coming to different conclusions. Not at all. On that. No, not at all. Right. But, you know, that that's where I am on that. But anyway, big news for everybody. Yeah. So we can ask Russell how he thinks about. That's exactly right. Having people like Candace Owens on because he is coming on Crystal Kyle and Friends next week. Next week, Very Russell Brand will be on the show. Uh, this is This wasn't even necessarily the thing that led us to reach out to have him on the show. Yeah, we're we've been working on this for a little bit. Yeah, it's, we're just interested in him. We think he's uh, an interesting guy, um, and there's a lot to talk about with him because he's now, I think, over time, he's come into a similar space that we're in in terms of his role in the media landscape. I mean, there was a time when he wasn't this, but now he's all about talking about politics and economics and covering the news even. He's been covering news recently on yeah. his show, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, and his takes are really interesting. I learned from him. He has a little bit of a different approach than I think anybody else um, in the space. So I'm, I'm really excited to get the chance to talk to him. And I do want to ask him about how he thinks about these debates and these exchanges and sort of what his goals are coming that's into right. them. Because yeah. I, I think I just think that that's really fascinating. I wanted to ask you, mm -hmm. you were talking about how he used to not be as much your cup of tea right. because mm -hmm. he's more hippie and spiritual and you came from the like I'm an atheist thing. Do you think that part of why you like him more now isn't just that he's uh, changed his orientation, but also that you've changed? Well, I have changed my orientation, but I don't think that actually is the reason why I sort of like him now. I think the reason why I like him now is I just watched a lot more of him. And so I was able to sniff out that I think he's genuine. If mm -hmm. you're a hippie and you're putting the act on, go fuck yourself. Like, don't pretend <laughs> like, you know, I'm spiritual. I wear beads. Like, fuck you. Shut up. But if, you, if, you, if you're genuinely like that, you live that life for realsies, then that's sort of what's up. Yeah, because that's who you are. You got to let people, you know, be whoever they are. And, and I think he's genuine in where he's coming from. So that's, that's why he grew on me. My orientation did change a little bit. I went through, you know, everybody knows hardcore new atheist stuff. And then, you know, I still, I'm not religious by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I'm a little more open-minded in the sense that I'm interested in other perspectives on that front in a way I wasn't previously. So I did evolve on that front, but I'm not... That's not why he grew on me. Gotcha. He grew on me just because I watched more of his stuff, got a better sense of him as a person. His politics are actually a lot more in alignment with mine than I thought they were, mm. you know? Um, so, yeah, that would explain that. And by the way, guys, uh, if you want to get the interview with Russell a day early, so you get her on Friday and get the video version of the show, then subscribe on Substack, Crystal Kyle and Friends, $5 a month. If not, no biggie. You'll get it a day later. You'll get it on Saturday, and you'll get the audio version for free, for free for everybody. But just so you know, we take no ad money for this show. So, 
you know, it's one of those things where we really appreciate your support and yeah. you get the awesome perk of seeing that interview a day early and seeing the video version of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's next week. But this week, we also have a guest that we're both really excited to talk to. Faz Shakir, of course, he was campaign manager for Bernie Sanders. He also he used to work ACLU, used to work at, um, he was Think Progress, basically had to Think Progress at Center for American Progress. Lots of run-ins with Neera Tandon. Um, Doesn't like Neera at all. was an advisor to Senator Harry Reid, which is also actually very interesting. But what he's doing right now is this media venture that we referenced called More Perfect Union, um, focusing on labor struggle, workers' rights, elevating the voices of working-class Americans across America. Here is Faz Shakir. Faz Shakir, so great to have you here. Thank you. Well, Thank actually, you. wait, is it Faz or Fez? You... It is Faz, like Jazz. Faz, okay, gotcha. I nailed it. Uh, <laughs> and then there's, I was thinking of Zed Jelani. And yes, that's right. His spelling is Z-A-I-D. That's correct. Yes. And I was like, okay, there's... Uh, it's hard to explain. I, Urdu, Arabic, you know. It's, right. It's, the closer corollaries in Arabic sounds, which is Fez. Well, gotcha. English Perfect. language makes so much sense. Well, yeah. I can't there's... understand how any pronunciation would be different. Yeah, we um, put shit up all the time. So let's talk about your new venture, More Perfect Union. Kyle and I both have been using a lot of your videos on our show. You've Thank been covering you. stories that are literally not getting coverage anywhere else. Um, talking about labor struggles, really centering workers and what's going on right now in the economy. Just talk to us about what was your idea for it, what's kind of the structure around it, and what are your plans there? Well, uh, you know, we, there's a progressive media landscape. You guys are a big part of it. And the, the, the gap to my mind coming out of the Bernie campaign was that there are people all across this country who are suffering all the things we talk about, the inequality. And rather than, you know, talk about a policy paper on the shelf or, you know, a punditry conversation around it, let's go hear from the people who are most directly affected by it on a day-to-day -day basis. And they are actually mobilizing across the country whether it's in workplaces, but also they know their harm and their suffering the most. So why not just lift them up? And it goes to the critique of the mainstream media, which you guys know better than me, which like these are the stories that we were frustrated on the campaign. We're not getting covered. Right. right. We would stand up for picketing workers across America. It wasn't as if people were like, oh, you know, here's all these Delta uh, Airlines employees who are fighting for a better wage. It was hard to get that coverage. And despite the fact that we were trying to do everything we could to lift it up. So like we saw and observed it during the campaign. I came out of it saying, well, we got to do something. If, if somebody isn't already doing something about it, why not us? Like, let's go ahead and try to address and solve this problem and send around people to capture the stories of working people. So the way that I would describe More Perfect Union is I think you're doing what CNN and all the mainstream outlets, if they were good at their job, what they should be doing. They're like, you know, it's actual, real, like on the ground, investigative reporting. You're going you know, right to where there's labor struggles and, and union struggles and workers are getting exploited and taking advantage of, and you're really highlighting the things that are never really highlighted by the people who should be highlighting it. And I mean, it's really some phenomenal stuff. So some of this stuff has gone viral already. I've covered it. Crystal's covered it. Um, walk us through the, the the biggest one. What was the one? Was it in the was it in the business? Well, we or? launched around the Amazon organizing campaign okay. down in, in in Alabama. Now, obviously, you guys know how that went. But I, from my mind, a lot of the media didn't cover it. And 
and and you know, before we got there, you didn't even know who some of the workers were. They, right. they had never been put on a video. You didn't know their names. And I was like, if you're going to cover an organizing campaign, the, the traditional mindset in the media is pick up the phone, call Amazon's PR department, right, exactly. get their take. Absurd. Then maybe get like a union take from like national or international. But like, who are the people literally in the building working their colleagues? Let's hear what they are saying about their conditions, because ultimately that's what is the most important piece of the whole story. And and they're going to tell it to you better than anybody else. So that was, that started it. And I will say that my bias towards this project has been, I don't want to just talk about societal ills. There are plenty of them. You guys know them well. I want to point people towards the direction of people who are doing something about it. Mm. Right. And that's why I started with Amazon. These people are trying to stand up and do something about it. Same with the Frito-Lay workers in Topeka, yes. Kansas. Same with- That's the one. Frito-Lay is the video uh, I'm talking about. The, the man who was electrocuted yeah, on the job. Right. It's one of the most heart-wrenching things anyone could possibly watch. Uh, you know, and their stories, I think the reason they catch fire is because they're in a shared experience around many, many employees. And we're talking about some unionized workers, to be clear. I mean, at Frito-Lay, uh, some of the Nabisco workers out in uh, Portland and other places around the country. But the vast majority of workers, you know well, are non-unionized. And I'm trying to, re- I want to work hard to reach those people because mm. it's harder for them to speak out. Let's be clear. They're always fear of reprisals against yeah. them by an employer. And also they don't have a structure. They don't have a union with an official representative to reach out. So those, to my mind, is the next frontier. We got to talk to the Dunkin' Donuts employees, right? right? The, like, let's get around and talk to people who are suffering and uh, the, the people who've been, you know, who can tell the stories the best about the class struggle in our society. Yeah, which requires you to not have contempt for working class Americans. <laughs> right, yeah. Which it's is, a good I place mean, to start. Which yeah. is a good place to start. I mean, but that's, that's exactly yes. what you're pointing to is so many of these outlets. I mean, it's become a real monoculture yeah. where there's very little connectivity to these struggles. The language even of labor struggles has sort of fallen out of American totally. discourse. There's barely, I mean, there's barely any labor reporters that even exist right. anymore at um, major publications. And then where some of that reporting would have been done at the local level and, you know, the local newspaper, of course, yes. that's been sort of stripped down as well. So there's a huge need and obviously people are responding to it. Talk to me a little bit about the um, experience, you know, on the ground at, at Amazon down in Bessemer, Alabama. Were you surprised that that election went the way it did, or did you see signs that this was really an uphill battle? It was always an uphill battle. I mean, yeah, at the outset, there was a reason and a concern of many people about why do we want to highlight this? I mean, if you're talking to a lot of the national labor leaders, why do you want to highlight this? Because they, they're likely to lose. I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> I fought a campaign. I don't know. Just because you might be likely to lose doesn't mean you stop for fighting. Right. And you, right. fight. You, you, you fight. You raise the issues and you make the case. And in my mind, the most important thing we were doing is sending a message across the nation, not just to speaking to people in Alabama, but across the country that here's courage right in front of your face. Here are some people who are doing something about their conditions. I will say that, you know, at the end of the day, you learn a lot about the organizing, the, pol- the political analyst in me, yeah. watching like how you organize in these uh, departments. And it was one of the things you, you clearly see is like there is fear, um, a rational fear, let's be honest, yeah. among workers that Amazon is such a greedy and a corporate boss that it is going to shut this plant down. And, and and many of them would tell you, like, listen, I want to be part of a union, but I'm not going to do it without all of the other Amazon right. employees coming with me. Because yeah. if, if we do it alone here in Alabama, they're just going to shut us down. And they're not they're not crazy. They're not wrong. And they're there's not, not a, in a place like Bessemer, 
There's totally. not a lot of other jobs, certainly not a lot of other jobs that pay as decently that, as that job pays. Absolutely right. Far from enough. Absolutely. So you you taught me a bunch of stuff that I didn't know, and I almost was ashamed of the fact that doing what I do for a living, I didn't know a lot of the basic things you, you walked me through with some of these segments, particularly the Nabisco one I'm thinking of, where we learned that it was like there were some people who were working three or four months straight. There were some people who... I mean, there were some people who literally overworked themselves to death. That happened at a couple of these. There was no climate control in the factories. So in the summer, it'd be scorching hot in there. In the winter, it'd be freezing cold in there. And I'm sitting there watching this and I'm going, how are there not already laws for this? Right. Like to have the climate control in there, to have an absolute maximum cap on the number of hours you could work. And then, you know, I saw the thing that really hurt was when I saw that the union reached an agreement, but the agreement was just everybody gets one day off per week. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. So this this is such a, there's so many giant issues here that have to be tackled at the federal level where they have to come. I mean, we're the only developed country that doesn't have paid vacation time by law. Every right. other developed country has it. Working on that one though. <laughs> right, yeah, we are working on that one. Joe Manchin's yes. standing in the way. But anyway, I digress from that. Right. But um, I don't even know if I have a question here. Just talk a little well, bit I mean, about it. <laughs> like, we have dug such a hole for working people across this country that we have to, uh, again, chip away, chip away, chip away. And people are not aware of it. I mean, the, the suffering that was going on, you mentioned 12-hour workday, seven days a week, no time off, you know, because they are being sweet. Let's be honest about what's going on. There is a power in the corporate sphere that they know that they can control workers. They can control everything about them control their schedule because they think that if you don't take this job you best of luck to you you ain't getting another one out there and mm -hmm. so it and because as a result of the power imbalance in our society they are taking advantage of the situation they have a lot of it not only over the economy but obviously over politics as well and so when you're looking at corporate power and standing up to it, it explains a lot of the media problem, too. It's not as if they are just in the tank with Amazon. It is that they are fed a, a, a ethic uh, from Amazon, a perspective that says, oh, a labor shortage exists in America. And that's so terrible right, right. now. That is the perspective of business. Right. Honestly, like right. you have to step back. What is it? What does a labor shortage in America mean? It means that labor is standing up for itself. It's saying, I'm not going to take that shitty job. Right. right. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not going to take it for $10 now. Raise it to 12 and give me childcare. Then maybe I'll yeah. consider it. Right. Even There's, Biden take, acknowledged that. Yes. Remember? And he got shit from the media for it. Of course. When Biden was Anytime like, he does pay them higher. Remember, he whispered in the microphone, pay them higher wages. Yeah. And he was like, oh my goodness, that's ridiculous. <laughs> But the point, and you guys understand it, is like we live in such a corporate-dominated psyche. It has pervaded the consciousness not only of how we think and how you what you hear on TV. Oh, inflation! It's such a you know, mm -hmm. it is it is a business-minded mindset, and workers have been living the. The, the pain of it. I mean, right. there's a reason when you think about the disease of despair, Crystal, you know, it well, it's like, you know, suicide, alcoholism, they're so, they, the condition of the working person is struggling out there. And, you know, their stories are just frankly not told and, and not sought. And, and we're trying to do something about it. I think there's also a problem where um, these struggles don't fit into an easily packaged right left narrative. Yeah. It's not right. horse race story. Right. And especially during the Trump era, if there wasn't like a, and therefore Trump is bad <sighs> angle to it, right. then they didn't really care. Um, I was on the ground, some for the uh, teacher strike wave, both in West right. Virginia and in Kentucky. And that was an astonishing, historic event in what is, you know, a conservative red state. Every single county in that state, the teachers technically illegally said, 
no, no, we're shutting this whole thing down. Mm -hmm. They had mass support from the population. We're standing up for ourselves. We're standing up for our students. It got a little bit of coverage in the media, and this thing went nationwide, predominantly in red states, by the way, where budgets have been stripped, especially bare, with regards to public education. They really didn't know how to cover the story because it was complicated. A lot of these were Trump voters who were now taking what would be considered sort of like a leftist action. And so they'd talk about it a little. They'd send one crew there, but it was not portrayed as the major national event that it truly was. Can I add to it? I think you're yeah. hitting something exactly right, which is we have a bias towards political coverage in, 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 in the media in general. Like everything yeah. must be seen as hyper political. How does it help Team D? How does it help Team R? And what has been missing in my mind is economy coverage, the condition of people, right? right? Because it you're right, it doesn't fit in. And, and just truly understanding how the economy works. How, how do large corporations function? If you go into any town when when I travel with Senator Sanders, you know, first question I ask, who's who's the biggest employer in this town? Mm. Like that will speak to the the town, you know, well, like you go, go in any town, say, who are the biggest employers? Oh, it's John Deere. Okay. Well, you know, something, or you go to textile, Texas, this is amazing. Oh, well, it's Department of Homeland Security. Well, mm-hmm. oh, like how you talk about immigration and the detention, they're living, unfortunately, they're benefit, you know, benefiting because their livelihoods depend on Detention, right? Yeah, right. and so like, but you have you understand the economies of towns to understand the political views of people instead of rather starting from political views and, and trying to dissect those. To my mind, un, I, that's where this project is really starting from. It's like let's understand how the economy works, which big corporations control it, how do people, what kinds of wages are they experiencing, what are their, you know, wh- where have jobs been lost over the past few decades in in certain towns? I, that to me is the story of America. So to your point about how it's not really left-right, you actually commissioned a poll not too long ago. 69% of Trump voters and 70% of Americans support expanding Medicare to cover dental care. I know you're shocked about that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, they don't, this isn't talked about in that context exactly. where, like, it's actually a unifying thing because getting screwed is not a partisan thing. Everybody's getting screwed. So how you react to that, I mean, this is the obvious stuff that you do. You expand oh, you Medicare. Tra- you travel with Bernie, one of the wonders of my life is to travel with him from town to town across America and hold these town halls. You remember covering them as well as I do. And it, it, he'd ask these questions. I Tell me about your copay. Tell me your deductible. Tell me about healthcare. And you see people stand up and say, you know, it's shame, you know, shame because like they feel like they're failing their families, they feel like they're letting people down around them. They feel like if if I'm bankrupt because of healthcare costs, I must have done something wrong, which as we know is not their fault, but a corrupt, corrupt system we live in. But then people would stand up and say teeth. And you're like, what, what about teeth? Like, oh, and you see, there's a class dimension to this issue. If, if the, those of us who are doing well, yeah, we go to the dentist. So we get preventive care. You live in a rural part. You may not have a dentist. You may not have dental mm. coverage. It may cost you thousands of dollars to get, you know, basic dental care. So you hear the stories of people who do not have basic dental care. And it is heart-wrenching. I mean, it, it, as you know, it affects your it could lead to bone disease, it lead to heart conditions. It, it just, and, and the amount of money that it takes to cure it is, is, is unconscionable. And you hear that and you go around and it sticks in your head. Like this is a story never told in media and yet it's the lived experience of right. so many people and it is a class story. And so like go out there and, and my mom, in my mind, that's why we are fighting for it. Like these are not a, the stories that would be told, but they, we know that if they are told, there are a hell of a lot of people out there who will, it will resonate with. Bernie got, you remember this? Bernie got a standing ovation. It was in a town hall either in West Virginia or Kentucky. He got a standing ovation 
from Trump voters. And one of them said to Bernie that you represent me more than Mitch McConnell ever did. Uh, you know, a, a Democratic leaning independent senator from Vermont represents my interest more than Mitch McConnell ever did. Yeah. I thought that was quite a moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how do you surface some of the stories? Like, what's your process for for finding these struggles? Because, I mean, as we've been saying, there's just not a lot of news coverage. Yeah, you really have to kind of dig deep um, at the local level to find out what's going on in these places. Well, Chris, I start with basically here's the condition of working people uh, across America and wanting to kind of for myself coming off the campaign, be honest, and I hired you know, a number of people from the campaign to be part of more perfect union. But so let's start with kind of what we experienced and saw and felt around movements of workers across America and the issues that they were really deeply concerned in. Like, there's a reason why we covered dental, right? It's like, okay, it's not a story that's going to be told, but I have a feeling that there's a lot of people out there talking about it. So that's one element. Then obviously, as we've started this process, we've gotten more and more of a reputation of being a working class outfit in journalism. People have been reaching out to us. So we had a Frito-Lay worker who kind of told us about the story that was going on mm. in Topeka, Kansas. So we increasingly have gotten more incoming. I am, you know, being out here talking to you and others want to continue and urge people to please solic- uh, send us, you know, stop thoughts and stories from their communities. And what I really wanted to focus on is getting hyper-local about this stuff, Yeah, you know, and, and saying, hey, here's a plant in my community. Here's a job, you know, we covered Collectivo Coffee that's based in Chicago and Madison, parts of Milwaukee. Um, and it's, it was just like they reached out and said, hey, we're organizing our, our local coffee store. I'm like, yes, that's mm. what, and the reason I want to do that is because they're giving courage and strength to others who are just watching and saying, right. oh, I can do something about my workplace. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can. Right. I, like I said, I don't want to just do societal ills. They can spend all day long talking about them, but let's uh, now we have to do something about it. What are some solutions here? Let's put them on the table. Let's urge other people to follow. Hmm. Um, is it your sense? Because it seemed to me like in this post, well, it's not post pandemic, but the worst of the pandemic maybe is sort of over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're kind of picking our heads up and looking around at, um, shifts in the way people are living, shifts in the choices that they're making in the job market. You were mentioning the coverage. The media is like, oh, my God, isn't it terrible? There's so many job openings. Meanwhile, for workers, that's great news if you don't have to take the only thing available. Labor demand. Say, <laughs> right. Like, you know what? They're going to pay me $16 an hour down the street. So I'm going to go there. But I've also had the sense that there are more um, sort of active militant labor actions being taken. I'm not sure if that's reality or if it's actually just because they're being covered more primarily by you guys. Do you have a sense of whether that sort of like militant labor action and strife has actually increased or whether it's just that you guys are actually covering it? Uh, I I, th- I do think we're in the midst of a labor revolution that's going on. Uh, I don't know. It's not being led by labor, qual, qual labor. It is, I think it is truly like out, an outgrowth, both of a Bernie campaign and a progressive nature of seeing other people step up, but obviously the lived condition of deepening inequality. I would, I would highlight, you know, you mentioned the teachers before in your experience. I think mm-hmm. the new teachers of the moment are nurses. If you look at nurses on the front lines, basically any state in this country, just pick, you see nurses fighting for better working conditions in their mm. hospitals because they have just lived through a year, Crystal, of just being squeezed to the bone. Like, work every hour, don't take any days off, save our community, save our families. We're counting on you. And so now you come out of it 
damn tired, like not having really gotten time off, not really having has seen an increase in pay and being told by hospitals who, by the way, are making a hell of a lot of money. Oh, hey, you know, there's nothing, nothing on the table for you. We have yeah. to squeeze you. And I think they are right now, in my mind, the face of a kind of a growing burgeoning labor uh community a fight around the country but it is also as you you know rightly know some of these largest employers you see not just you know the 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 15 dollar hour workers or the 16 dollar hour you're starting to see obviously even in Google and Apple and Tesla it is the higher uh, income workers also organizing which is a wonderful thing there needs to be worker solidarity in this country mm -hmm. uh, across uh, across the board and so i i am glad to see that you can what we're trying to do is metastasize that. I think we are in this moment with Joe Biden as the president, NLRB, pro-labor department, you know, uh, the, the the moves that Bernie have made to change the consciousness of this country. Now's the time. Step it up. Kim Kelly made a good point to me, who I know has done yeah. great work for you Fantastic guys. Fantastic reporter. She's been invaluable. She's at Grim Kim on Twitter. She's yeah. been following the um, Alabama coal miners strike from day Warrior one. Med. Um, Warrior Med, exactly. Yeah. And she made a... Uh, Great point, which is that as more journalistic outfits are unionizing, including actually MSNBC mm -hmm. unionizing right now, that that is is helping a little bit to at least give people some connection to what a union is yes. and what solidarity <laughs> actually is. Not going to change their coverage. So that Don't there's you. at least some understanding yeah. of um, what these struggles are actually all about. Because that's will, part of the challenge is like. People don't even know, even if they're in theory supportive of unions, they don't have a direct experience with it. As you say that, I remind of one of the other major things that has influenced me personally is is that I happen to run a, a the first unionized presidential campaign in American history. Mm. And having gone through that process, process of voluntary recognition of a union and then working with, uh, in that case, the UFCW Local 400 all the way through, understanding shop stewards, understanding the CBA, a collective bargain agreement, what how this works, I can't away saying, oh, it's not hard. Like, this is good. And in fact, I come away from a place that says, I appreciate it. I ran you know, an organization of 1,200 employees at its peak in, in like late January, early February of 2020. We were at 1,200 employees. How the hell are you going to communicate with 1,200 employees? It's mm. very challenging for anyone at the top of any organization to do that. And the unions give you a way to do that. They, mm. they give you a path to say, hey, here's some of the concerns being felt. Here's ways we could address them. If, if done the right way, you are working in partnership to say, hey, here's some Here's some things that, you know, we can work together on. And I, for instance, you know, coming from the perspective of management, I liked it. I needed that. I need mm -hmm. somebody who's who's helping me talk to 1,200 people. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about Biden in a second. Before I do, I just want to tell everybody, I cannot recommend it enough. You guys just, I mean, you didn't start that long ago, but I still think it's a its a crime that there's only about 12,000 subscribers on uh, More Perfect Union. So guys, go subscribe, get them up to at least 100,000. They do you. phenomenal work. I mean, going directly to the workers where the labor struggles are happening, talking directly to them, getting them on the record. The videos are phenomenally well-produced. I mean, thumbnails, everything's great. So everybody yeah. go uh, subscribe to More Perfect Union. You're not going to regret it. I mean, you're probably going to see Crystal and I do cover their stuff quite a mm -hmm. bit. We'll continue to do that, but go yeah. subscribe because you, it'd be absolutely wonderful for you to do that. And uh, are you, were you going to, I was going to ask about Biden. Biden. I have an, another couple questions on more perfect union. First of all, it takes a lot of resources yeah. to produce these videos up and be on the ground and fly crews around, et cetera. What is your funding mechanism? Yep. Is there a way that people, that you want people to help out? Yeah. So I, first of all, we are a grassroots funded, uh, uh, Version grassroots funded uh, organization, so we welcome any. Uh 
contribution that people can make. I've been reaching out to people in the uh, nonprofit philanthropy world to urge this, as you can, <laughs> you guys would probably appreciate it. Uh, sometimes the the class struggle isn't always uh, appreciated by people who have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But I think you know it's a testament to where Bernie has led people that they they they, they see it and they realize the need for it. And I think it's been a a little bit of an easier conversation with some folks who are who fund you know nonprofits in the progressive world to say, hey, there's a gap here. You know, you care about neoliberal taking on neoliberalism. You care about you know making a kind of middle class society work. Okay, well, let's. You care about a race class narrative. Well. Here they are, right there in front of your face. Here's an Amazon worker fighting the race class narrative in front of your face. So you care about it. Let's try to work together to just lift them up. And I, you know, I said I I didn't want to do this project if like you know I, I, it's, it's not for vanity. It's a and you it, don't want Bloomberg's money. I, I, and I also <laughs> didn't. I want a general funding. I want, I want right. people to know that I'm going to pick and choose where we're going to go. You're not going to fund me to do. Oh, here, just go go cover this because right, that's yeah. where the, people put their finger mm. on the scales and say, oh, well, you have to do this. So we don't take any union money. I've just preserved editorial freedom and independence to just follow where the story goes. That's what I mean. We do that for Crystal Kyle and friends. We it's all small dollar donations. Yeah. People pay pay five dollars a month. They get the video mean? version of day early, but, you know, it's all small money funded. We don't take any ad money for this, so we can relate to that yeah. sort of yeah. funding model. And it's interesting to me, um, you have leaned into a project that isn't explicitly political in the terms right. of, like, of course, obviously, what's happening with workers is deeply political. Right. But it's, it's not partisan. It's not either. partisan. That's the, r- yes. the right way to put it. Um, was that an intentional yes. choice? Yes, because I'm interested in persuasion, Kyle, uh, or Crystal, and both of you. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I'm I'm interested in persuasion. We've gone, gone through a campaign. I experienced politics writ large. You guys saw it. I want more people coming to what what are we what do we want to call this progressive populism something all yeah. you know economic populism in this country seeing and feeling that, that that comes from the real lived experience of many people across the country so the what, how do you do that well you kind of as you, we talked about the outside you take the way the team D and the team R off of it you you know as as wonderful I love Bernie Sanders I love you know AOC I love them all but you know you add in them and people start to see them more than the story of the right. worker so like in my mind if we're doing persuasion the best ambassadors are just let the story and the the messenger speak for this and then let people draw whatever conclusions. Oh, yeah, we, that's why we should fight for Medicare for all. But you come to that opinion having seen that right, dental yeah. is really freaking screwing with people's lives across America. Yeah. Do you have anything else before I jump into Biden? Or Go Okay, ahead. so I want to ask you about Biden. Um, I, I mean, I could go in a million different directions with this. Everybody knows I'm, harsh, I'm very critical in, in some ways, uh, but... So, but looking at some of the more positive things he did, and you covered some of them on More Perfect Union. So, right to repair, something yeah. that he did, signed an executive order on that. Yeah. He signed an executive order on $15 minimum wage for about 400,000 um, yeah. federal workers, both federal contractors and federal employees. Um, ended the war in Afghanistan, did the stimulus checks with his first bill. Um, how receptive has he been to left pressure in your opinion, knowing some people you mentioned Klein earlier before, like knowing some of the people in that world, is he genuinely receptive to being pushed left? And if he is, do you attribute that to his friendship with Bernie? What do you think of all that? Yeah, ge- uh, genuinely, the answer is yes. Yeah, uh, even as a person himself, he's old school politician. I mean, we, we're kind of losing a generation of people like this. And uh, you know, I work for Harry Reid and others. They they always understood that. Hey, you know, we got difficult, hard jobs. You got to represent a lot of people. 
I need some push. I need some pressure. You, you know, if you want to tell me, a, 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 you want to make an argument for a good policy, don't just tell me, you know, to do it. Go and help push me in that direction to do it. So they, from the jump and all the way through the campaign, they've always appreciated like challenges to move them, as long as it didn't become personally derogatory. That's their that's their line. I understand too. It's the same with Bernie. I always got very. I got my back up against anybody who wanted to say, well. Bernie's a phony and a fake. I'm like, right, yeah. I, I, yeah. Like you're kind of dead to me. Like that's, that's, yeah. that's BS. So like if you start going there with Biden, yeah, they get upset about it. But if you tell them, hey, I want to make the case for, you know, canceling all student debt. They they don't they don't give you the stiff arm. I mean, there were t- there were other Democrats and obviously there was a prior administration who would always get angry. You know why are you pushing us on Afghanistan? We're so progressive. You shouldn't tell us that our our uh, ramp up of troops in Afghanistan is not progressive. And they would get angry about it. This is not an administration that gets angry about it. Uh, I think generally has been well intentioned about moving towards benefits for working people in this country. They got a hard job to do, and I appreciate it. But. You know, I, I am one that feels positive. You can sense it in me and, and, and my conversations with them all the way through from the end of the Bernie campaign all the way through now. Kind of honest, sincere in the way they do business. They say they're going to do something. They're going to do it. So the counter argument is uh, that welcome. they've basically um, placated the left with pats on the head, Ron Klain retweets and things of that nature. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, it looks very much in doubt where the reconciliation package is ultimately going to end up. They gave up on the $15 minimum wage. They're letting the Senate parliamentarian effectively hold the future of the planet hostage for no good reason. So, yeah, they may be a little more outwardly friendly towards the left and less combative than the Obama administration has. But in the end, where has that ultimately gotten them? Other than, um, you know, even when they do things that are directly, you know, dropping any sort of criminal justice reform, for example, or police accountability, you didn't hear anything from civil rights organizations that said this was a priority. Um, $15 minimum wage gets dropped. You don't hear anything from progressive organizations where this was, you know, a key priority for them. So it seems like in some senses they've been very effective at giving out pats on the head, placating people, but not actually delivering on the the promises that were made. Yeah, I, I come from a different perspective and I appreciate, you know, uh, I, I appreciate the criticism uh, and I'm not here to like speak for Biden so you get the he, he or Ron Clay come on and defend themselves. But I will say I that- I don't think they're going to do that. Yeah, but anyway, go ahead. I don't think Joe Biden's a big fan of Kyle Kalinske. <laughs> throw me I called him a war throw criminal a invite. couple dozen times. <laughs> um, you know, I, you, you know, again, I'm not paid to, speak for them but i yeah. will just no, say I like, hear your perspective yeah though. my perspective is that it is an it is a very hard job to be president when you don't have the magical powers of, of of just kind of ordering an agenda to be passed it is not a parliamentary system where you know people just line up and certainly they have the difficulties of how do you coax joe manchin to be the 50th vote for our oh passage? i know and, i know but go on i want, yeah, I want no. to interject <laughs> yeah, yeah well no, let's we should get there because obviously let's throw it all on the table and figure out how to do it but i, I you know in a 15 dollars minimum wage the biggest problems are these eight senate democrats who you know don't believe in it. They just don't believe in it. So then what are you going to do? Like, could could Biden do something? Well, he, as, you, as Kyle mentioned, he did an executive order. I don't think they've walked away from it. They they want to figure out how the hell do you get to eight Senate Democratic votes? I, you know, I, I, on the reconciliation, reconciliation part, they're not walking away from it. They're trying to get the two additional Senate votes on Afghanistan. It is very hard to freaking leave a war. I mean, we've been I give them a lot of credit. We give full yeah. credit on yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But even no. like taking on large corporations in America, I mean, putting Lena Khan in charge of the FTC, it's a chairperson, not just like on the FTC, but 
am I trying? Here's a chairperson. It's unbelievable. Like the NLRB has re, been restacked. You look at across the board. This administration is taking on some tougher battles, and it's not going to be perfect for everybody. But I see the positive moves in the right direction, and I and I attribute a lot of it to a growth out of Bernie. Right? Like I think he has changed this party, changed the consciousness, changed the direction, and and I appreciate where it's going. So on the mansion thing. Because we just learned, Ryan Grimm, I think, did he do the original reporting? We yeah. found out that Manchin's daughter yes. uh, was basically illegally colluding with Pfizer, where they said, they have the emails, they have her dead to rights, where she's like, how can we come up with a rationalization to price gouge on this? <laughs> and, you know, and Manchin's wife was involved with schools where she was trying to get them to to stock up on EpiPens, therefore putting more money in the pockets of the Manchin family. So now Crystal's referring to them rightly as the Joe Manchin crime family. Yeah. If you're they, Joe Biden, let me ask you a question. If you're Joe Biden... How could you not call Merrick Garland into your office, call Joe Manchin into your office and say, hey, listen, I could be your best friend or I could be your worst enemy. Old Merrick here might take a look at your daughter. Maybe she'll go to prison if you don't uh, reconsider that $3.5 trillion bill. Yeah. First of all, a couple of thoughts on that. One is, and I always felt this way in the campaign, don't ever assume you know private conversations. <laughs> like, mm. I, I'm not sure that what the way you phrased it, I don't think ever would sound like Joe Biden. And I think you know that too. But do we believe that he's in a conversation with him about, hey, there's a carrots and sticks here? Right. Yeah, LBJ I mean, approach, it, FDR it's approach. It's been mostly carrots, to be honest. Like, the way in which he has coaxed Mansion to the right way has been, um, hey, has been like, I will point your wife to a commission. He's, the app, he's the head of the Appalachian. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. He, and he's gone. He's like offering, you know, hey, I'll get on the phone with you anytime you want. I want to work with you. It's a lot of positivity. And I understand why it is because you, you know, they've had some successes. They passed an American Rescue Plan. They're on a path where you, he, had the, the, he voted the right way on three, three and a half budget resolution. Whether he votes the right way on the reconciliation, we'll see. So they're kind of in the mode of get to yes. Before, once you go to negative, once you do the sticks, you don't really go back. But so you only okay, use so that on. when you like are but, ready to throw down with somebody. But mm-hmm. here's the thing. So, but there's two sides to that equation. So I agree with the carrot and stick approach. What you say is that, and then the other part of the conversation is, and by the way, yes. if you do the right thing, you want another military base in West Virginia? You want me to double the amount of infrastructure money going to West Virginia? I'll do that right this second. You have my word. So I'll be your best friend or your worst enemy. It's your choice. Uh, and again, Kyle, I would, uh, you know, I, I appreciate, the, these are very, uh, you know, intelligent people in the White House. I, my own estimation of what I know about what is going on is that it's very much the way they think. Mm. The other thing I that, like that. <laughs> I hope that's thing, real. The other thing that's been dissonant for me, though, is that there's a lot of language of existentialism. Yeah. Some of it justified, um, I think, especially around climate change, um, but also about just like the future of democracy. And there's a lot of language of the Republican Party and especially the Trump Republican Party being an existential threat. But there doesn't seem to be the same level of action that you would take if you actually regarded these things as existential. I mentioned earlier, you know, the Senate parliamentarian. This is an unelected staffer who they've decided they're going to defer to. And in fact, the key provisions with regards to climate change, which is effectively a renewable energy standard that's they want to push through reconciliation, which, by the way, Joe Manchin happens to chair the Senate committee that would likely be in charge of writing those rules. Let's put that aside for a moment. But those climate change provisions are very much up for grabs over whether that's going to happen or not because of the Senate parliamentarian. So when you say that They're doing everything they can. They're twisting the arms. They're doing the carrots and the sticks. They don't have a magic wand. 
that's all true. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that there are steps they've been unwilling to take. Yes. The two primary being getting rid of the filibuster Parliament. and the saying, you know, we'll get a new parliamentarian or we'll overrule the parliamentarian or whatever. And um, so that's the piece that's very frustrating to me. And it's the same thing with the $15 minimum yeah. wage. Ultimately, yeah, you've got some Democratic opposition. But if you put that in that initial relief package and you said, screw you to the Senate parliamentarian, they would have voted for it. Yeah. Well, so. Or you put it with the uh, national defense authorization uh, or something else that's must pass and you get it through. Again, I appreciate debate. So I will have a, a different yeah. perspective of you. I will say that, you know, President Bush, when he was president uh, and they had a bad ruling from a parliamentarian, they replaced the parliamentarian yep. and there wasn't really much of a kerfuffle around and they yeah. did it. The the difference, <laughs> Crystal, is that there's a, an assumption and a presumption made here is that when and if you sack the parliamentarian, I speak as somebody, you know, worked in the Senate and yeah. worked with Reed. When you do that and then you and then let's say let's, let's put American Rescue Plan or, or let's take a reconciliation plan back up, you still need those 50 votes. And, and so when you do the sacking the parliamentarian, you have to assume and do you believe that it will help you gain those last votes? And I... No, you know, know and feel strongly that if they had done it, let's say, it put it, sack the parliamentarian, put the rescue plan up. I do believe you got some uh, rather crappy Democrats who would have said, "No, this is a so this is a they would have the, the whole thing. relief bill over yes. fifteen dollars." Sadly, I do because they would have they would have jumped to uh, this is such an unbecoming Senate. I can't believe I can't be part of a party that mm, engages in such a terrible. Decision. I mean, Lily, yeah. think about you have to kind of embrace what is Joe Manchin like? What is this modern centrism? Not so, it is this ethic of like, oh well, we kiss up to very powerful corporate actors and other or, or, elite people, and we. We preserve decorum of institutions and the way that the status quo works, it works very well for certain people and they preserve it. And so when they talk about cutting down a reconciliation package, it's not because they're, you know, they're, they're helping ordinary people. They're saying, well, this will cozy up to some people who might otherwise flip out, you know, who might get angry with us if we go to three and a half. So why don't we just cut this thing down? So if you embrace and understand that psyche, now t- talk to me about cutting, uh, sacking the parliamentarian. And t- I will tell you where he's going to be. Oh, this is unbelievable. I can't be part of a party. Yeah, but then you, you could still give him the character stick at at that point. You know what I mean? But you know, like, there are ways to do the it. The weapon that he's used, obviously, is he's always threatening to bolt and say, "Oh, you know, I'll I'll join against you." And you know, it, it, listen, it's, I. I'm not going to be the. Oh, no you mean switch to Republican? That's what he's or, or independent or just you. not vote for it. Exactly. No. So you're in a place where with the 50-50 Senate, you need him on every nominee. Remember, like he he holds a lot of cards here. Every nominee, every person that Joe Biden wants his administration, there's free, you, you know you need Joe Manchin. Well, yeah. carrots and sticks, baby. The other thing is, Crystal has a point. I'm sorry, Crystal, to interrupt sure. just real quick and keep keep that thought in mind. Whatever you were about to say. Um, even if we grant you all that, there's still the reality that Joe Biden could eliminate all student debt with an executive order and legalize weed with an executive order, and he hasn't done it. So, but you know, on that one, yes, yeah, because he's he's not progressive on this issue. So, right. like, th- yeah. there's a, literally an ideological difference. No, I, we I should agree. not we should not paper over it. Like, but I, can Bernie, I believe in. Can Bernie convince him on that though? Is it possible to change his Listen, mind on that? It, one of the things that we fought over <laughs> in the in the unity commissions, right? One of one of them was the criminal criminal justice after the Bernie, Bernie campaign right. ended. We formed these kind of unity task forces, and the criminal justice one. We we spent more time on marijuana than any other issue. My friend Stacy Walker and Justin Bamberg and uh, who else was on that commission? Oh, uh, um, uh, Shirag Baines, who now works in the White House. But we spent so 
much time. He wouldn't budge. Working on, we would say, you know, even to go from schedule, his, his current position was go from schedule one to schedule two. And yeah, he should do that, right? At the very least. But we're like, schedule two? Like you're yeah, putting out a, a schedule with opioids? What are you talking about? Are you about? insane? Yeah. <laughs> Does he not know his, his son is I'm, Hunter Biden? This is, but this like, is hard. I bro, mean, your son's high right now. That's <laughs> actually what is what is hard. And I know that does veer into the personal, but you know, if his son wasn't well connected and Are you kidding dad me? Yeah. is the U.S. senator, I mean, his yeah. own father writ- wrote the rules practically right. that would have Go incarcerated him for life. But mm-hmm. the truth, I mean, you were right to say that he certainly committed to some things during a right. federal executive order on Schedule One and Schedule Two and decriminalization and you know not doing prosecution. So th- that should be done. Yeah, like, why, he hasn't why, even why, done why that. Right. Yeah. yeah. But then and then. I think it should go much further. Of course. But I, yeah. I say on that point, Kyle, we just have to, there is ideological, it's like Medicare for all. Like, he's just not yeah, there. Uh, I don't agree. So, right. I, but the funny thing, he's also abandoned the public option. Again, to Crystal's point, he's also abandoned the public option. Yes. So it's like, I'm for the public option. Then yeah. as soon as we get to actual, oh, you're president, it's like, Yes. It's funny. Who this? I don't public option. Yeah, but no, he, I, I mean, on that score, yeah. right, it's complicated because he adds Medicare expansion where he wasn't necessarily for it before either. So, but like, he knows like, that's going to be eliminated from in the reconciliation package. Not necessarily, Kyle. Don't give up oh, on it. I, I, when <laughs> I, I'll go on the record and say I think that's happening. I mean, that was when I asked Bernie about the public option. He basically said, like, I can't, we kind of had a choice between mm. Medicare well, expansion, and he said he preferred, he preferred Bernie preferred right, Medicare, Medicare expansion, expansion over public, which I, which and I the, agree and with. Because, because, let's be honest, like, and I, I have serious concerns about the public option because it leads to an unraveling Agreed. of traditional Medicare. Agreed. And so, yeah. like, I, I am not really eagerly for it either. I mean, like, if we're going to do it, we should expand Medicare. Let's reduce the eligibility age, right? That, that's an easy way to go about yeah. it rather than say, oh, here's a public yeah. option and it starts to unravel what right. a public guarantee. What? No. Pelosi and others seem to want is to move more in the direction of sort of solidifying Obamacare, yes. which in some ways makes it more difficult to get ultimately to a, a nationalized that healthcare. That is the Helps the insurance companies, yeah. helps the insurance yeah. companies. So, yeah. So that actually, that rationalization actually made sense to me as an affirmative choice. If that's your choice, we're going to go do public option or we're going to lower the Medicare eligibility age, we would pick that. Now we'll see if, if that actually happens. Side note, I was just looking at uh, the Economist YouGov poll, which has Biden at under 40% approval rating. Um, under 40? Yeah, 39. Oof. Number, on a specific issue or overall? Overall. Oh. I mean, <laughs> it's one poll and polls suck, et cetera. But the Fucking number one issue with was Afghanistan and, and inflation. I mean, is the inflation in Afghanistan is both on the economy and, and foreign policy. All of Biden is like Well, and I think he's uniquely vulnerable yeah. to when the media turns on him totally. over like the best thing that he's done in his entire career. In right. My yeah. To get opinion. out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, but he's uniquely vulnerable to that because his political base yeah. loves the media <laughs> you and, know and, i mean it's like and the media made him president people yeah. who yeah, yeah media made him media president. made him president they Usually. said this is the guy mm-hmm. you were lived through it and it turned like an, oh, on a dime PTSD, I'm feeling like right nothing now. we've ever seen but that's <laughs> me more than you yeah. <laughs> <I believe it. laughs> um but you know i mean that's kind of a, a castle built on sand because the minute they turn on you then yep. those same people who bought into you because of the media turn on you because of the media i think that's part of of why he's in a, a difficult place right now. I think Delta is the other yeah, big reason, right, part yeah. of which is his fault and part of which is not. I think the fact that you have had a slowdown in terms of action coming out of Washington and people feeling like this is impacting their life, I think that has an impact as well. But, you know, Faz, the other thing I wanted to ask you about here, kind of putting on your Harry Reid strategist hat, perhaps, is I also don't understand why there hasn't been more commitment to maintaining power. Yeah. Um, Democrats are screwed in these midterms. Yes. And 
Yeah. Because of redistricting, which is, so, you know, happening as we speak, in Texas, yeah. and there was no gerrymandering reform, mm -hmm. they come in with something like a seven to eight point disadvantage yeah. just in terms of keeping so the house. You start from losing the house, yeah. You start with a, a seven or six, seven, eight point disadvantage. Then you have the history of any time the president's party in power is very difficult mm -hmm. to hold on to power. So even from that, it's hard for me to understand why they didn't make more of an aggressive push to push through those reforms that would just help them to solidify power from a political perspective. I, I wish I had an answer for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I I know that, that that is heartfelt among the vast majority of Democrats in the House and the Senate, but not 100 percent. And so uh, and the, the, the tool that is required to do it in the Senate is, as we all know, is the filibuster reform. Mm. And so, you know, uh, people are claiming even Senator Sinema. Oh, yeah, well, we got to do something about, you know, voting rights restoration mm. in America. However, uh, not doing something, the filibuster stands in the way and we can't do anything about it. So, you know, those who people who are kind of process determinative on are, are hanging on to the filibuster and it is, you got to do something about it. Are you, are you still in touch with Senator Reid? You still yeah, talk yeah. to him? I know you won't divulge anything yeah. that's not already public, but what does he think about all of this? Because he oh. was the longtime sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. defender of Senate in, as but, an institution. The, I will remind you, you're, in 2013, we engaged in the first action of changing the Senate rules that's for right. that mm -hmm. Obama's yeah. nominees. Uh, at he the was NL stronger than Obama. A lot of people don't know that. And, he was much more hardline Obama than Obama. Was, yeah, the, the the administration was not was concerned about that approach because they were worried about the decorum of like how will de Democrats react. But he pushed it through. Right. He got it done. He got the fifty votes. Manchin was against us at that time, uh, but we had fifty and we got it done. And as a result, Obama had nominees. We got people on the on the court. Uh, during the Trump tenure that was very helpful. Uh, and now here we are again needing to do the next move and, and Senator Reid is 100% for it, urging both publicly and privately his colleagues to say, just do the damn thing. The Senate, uh, the, the, the Constitution of the United States allows the Senate to set its own rules. Just make the move because if you don't do it, you, you can be damn sure the Republicans will at some point when it benefits There's, them. I mean, it, it really is a crime and I remember I covered this on my show. I forget the exact numbers so don't quote me guys, but I think it's something, there's like 162 exceptions to the filibuster so adding them is absolutely Absolutely nothing. You have, you know, the argument of like, even if you don't get rid of it, at the very least, you can go back to the talking filibuster, yeah. which is what the original idea was, which is an idea that I would certainly support as, you know, some sort of like a compromise position. So it's criminal that they haven't done anything on it yet. Um, I want to ask, do you have anything left? On, I want to get to his, the campaign. Okay. So, um, I mean, there's a million <laughs> things we can ask you about to this. So the Bernie campaign, yeah. yeah. Uh, you uh, famously ran the campaign. There was a while there where, you know, you were the next big thing because he, he was winning everything in sight. He won the first three. We were all on cloud nine. Everything felt invincible. And then, like I said before, there's a million things that you could argue led to this point. But really, you had uh, Mayor Pete, Amy Klobuchar, the exact same day, the last moment, drop out, endorse Biden, Everybody coalesced and that the media was just banging the drums nonstop. This is the guy. This is the guy. This is the guy. He's the real deal. To that point, nobody had basically won the first three uh, contests and then ended up going on to lose. And that is what happened with Bernie. So very broad question right off the bat here. Um, who or what do you blame most for the loss? So we start from the presumption, and I, I believe I feel very confident and good about everything we did in the campaign. Mm. Honestly, I would look back and I could maybe point to like a couple of things here or there that I would have done differently, but on the whole, honored to have not only run it, but honored about the campaign that we ran, the values and the ethics that it held, and working for Senator Sanders. I mean, 
treasure of a lifetime. So I feel very strongly about that. Let me put that on the table. And then you know, say like, how and why do we lose? Well, the one thing, I, I, I say all this to be self-critical too. Like I, mm-hmm. you can blame me uh, for not figuring out how to address it. But the one thing we could not from uh, during the course of the campaign fully crack the nut on is that Bernie Sanders was the best candidate to defeat Donald Trump. We right. could not answer that question. Electability. There were two there were two questions at play. One was who's the candidate most best position to defend your values and fight for your values? I think we always won on that you one. You did. We're Big better. Time. But when people were voting on best position to defeat Trump, we from the jump, and we knew and recognized it, there was a reason we did a Fox News town hall as the first candidate, because I, we wanted to project that this is how he will stand on a stage against Donald Trump and defeat him, right? We were trying to send that message. And we went on a battleground tour around Michigan and Ohio to send the message that even in these battleground states, he could defeat Donald Trump. But when a lot of traditional Democratic voters saw that, they didn't necessarily disagree. I mean, it, they just said that, well, Joe Biden can do that too. And so I, I think that the struggle there obviously is to somehow convince those that he was a better bet than Joe Biden. And we could not get to a distillation, let's say a 30 second ad or whatever that would best argue why he, not Joe Biden, is the best position candidate to defeat, defeat Donald Trump. And that was the that was the downfall. What was it like um, watching that, like that moment when everybody drops down and coalescing and South Carolina happens and you're headed into Super Tuesday. I mean, it really did. And Joe Biden starts winning states that he's, he didn't even visit. He didn't even have a staffer on the ground. I mean, that was, it was incredibly demoralizing for us to watch. I can't imagine what it was like for you to watch, but, you know, did you, um, anticipate, that there would be such a dramatic change of the tide right at that moment, or did that cu- catch you off guard as well? well? Only anticipated in the last few days. So, I mean, you mentioned Senator Reid. Senator Harry gave me a call, as a courtesy, a few days ahead and said, listen, I'm going to be endorsing Joe Biden. And I was like, what? I mean, we had, I'm not going to get into the whole conversation, but yeah. but I, we had just crushed him by 20 points in Nevada. In Nevada. Yeah. And I, I'm like, what, what are you talking about? I, you know. It was a great day. So, <laughs> it, so you know, <laughs> I, I was frustrated, but, <laughs> but I remember, you know, hanging up the phone with Senator Reid and, you know, sending a note to staff and, and Senator saying, hey, you know, uh, I think we've got a coalescing, coalescing problem about mm-hmm. to hit us. And, it, you know, I, 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 so that what we was did, a signal that, for you. That was a signal for me that, that, yeah, something's coming. I didn't know exactly what, but I like Senator Reid isn't going to move solo, in other words, right? He, uh, he to me, was always a marker of a team player who's going to move where the party was moving. And you know, when was when was that call? Was a few, like, I lo- honestly, just a few days right before South Carolina. Okay. Yeah. So, so not, right not very South much Carolina. time, right? Not very much time. So, you know, I, you know, we we ramped up. We did certain things, right? We ramped up ad spending across the 14 states that were on Super Tuesday and March 3rd. Ad spending, obviously, as, as you guys now know and realize, did not do much for us, quite frankly, in terms of changing changing the attitudes of, of a lot of people, which, which it did. I, I don't know. I uh, don't have a great explanation. We tried all kinds of different arguments and approaches, and uh, I don't think ad spending itself wasn't the magic nut. I think when we worked well, we had an investment in a huge field capacity in Iowa, Nevada, New Hampshire, where we were talking to voters on the ground, and we did well in those places. And we can't replicate that in 14 states because yeah, it's a hell of a lot of people, a lot of movement. Can't hire that many people uh, on on the budget that we had. So uh, we had to rely on paid communications to try to carry us through that next phase. And the consolidation against us got down to the two person race too too late in the game for us. We we were we wanted the fight with Joe Biden one on one, right? We wanted to be able to be in a two person race. But w- that stipulates that we w- wanted to be on the debate stage with him. 
to mm. fight it out. Like say, hey, okay, look, to the point that I was making, how are you going to best convince people about who's best positioned to feed Donald Trump? In our minds, we had to get on a one-on-one fight with them about it. Like, what are you going to say when Joe Biden says he wants to drain, drain swamp? Or what was he, what do you, how are you going to respond to free trade arguments? How are you going to respond to, you know, various things that he might throw at you? And here's how I will respond, right? And, and you can make that argument on a debate stage where a lot of people are watching and hopefully amplify it. We just never got there. You know, the first debate that we ever got to have with Joe Biden one-on-one was March 15th after March 3rd had already concluded, March 10th had already concluded. Yep. The, a lot of the votes were already in, and unfortunately, the die had been cast. Yeah. So, well, and so, then the so, pandemic was ranging. It was a whole— Oh, yeah. Idea. Well, yeah, was, I know. But see, that's the thing is I thought the pandemic was an even bigger— opportunity for Bernie politically because it's, it's, hey, look, all the problems in society that I talk about all the time, they're rearing their ugly heads and now it's clear that I'm the best candidate. But anyway. I agree, but but the the, the hard part there is do voters agree with you? And I- Of course, it's the persuasion game, like you said. Yeah, and I even, you you look at voters' attitudes all the way through and it's not as, you know, sadly- the the attitudinal sh- t- attitudinal shift has not been as profound as I would like it to be around both the solidarity ethic in this country around Medicare for all. We need those universal programs, and you know I just see a need for doing much more progressive organizing person to person around this country because it did not come naturally. It did, even to this day, right? If you have forty plus percent of people unvaccinated, they're really honestly telling you they don't necessarily believe in a solidarity ethic right? because they're hyper individual. They say, hey, I, I care about my individual freedom so much that I'm not you you can't tell me to wear my mask, even though it requires me to take care of like the society around me. That is what we're fighting for though. We're fighting for a solidarity ethic. Feel free so to disagree with me. It would yeah. well to get back to it, because you made the good point. I think the thing that you say led to the loss, the data shows is the correct thing, namely that the you lost big on the electability question, and that was really the the biggest problem, and the polls bear that out. Um, I, what was the strategy on that specific thing? Because you could say over and over, I'm better than Joe Biden, but there there's, has to be an argument there. And one of the things that I had mentioned on my show a number of times that I thought would have been a, a potent way to fight that battle is to say, Joe Biden's Hillary Clinton. They have very similar politics. We ran this campaign in 2016. Hillary was the establishment choice, the favorite, the one who's likely to be Trump, and she lost. Joe Biden is exactly the same. Only I can beat Donald Trump. And the other thing is to say, hey, he's the radical candidate. I'm the actual, I'm the moderate one. He's the one who voted for the Iraq war. He's the one who voted for the Patriot Act. He's the one who supported all these outsourcing deals. I'm the moderate one. Was he open to using any of those arguments? Because he didn't come within yeah, we're, we're having a mile this, of them. We're having this conversation, obviously, with Joe Biden sitting in the White House. And it, it, I, I just say that because people were making a judgment <laughs> when they heard some of those things about, yeah, he may have been wrong before. And we have these conversations with doing focus groups. And like, people say, yeah, he was wrong before, but he's different now. And, and, and he can be Trump. And, you know, the hard part is that that was a rational judgment on their part. He did be Trump, right? And he is sitting in the White House. Could we have beat Trump? For damn sure. <laughs> like, I'm confident about that. We would have. Yeah. However, if people were making a judgment that, no, listen, I, I feel more confident and safe about this pick, it bore out. And I'm, all I'm saying is that the challenge at that time, even when you were raising these arguments about his record, the things he's done in the past, people would say, yeah, I know, I hear all that, but he's also the Joe Biden I know and I trust, and he's going to win. Don't you think he was too soft, though? Because, like, for example, the Zephyr Teachout thing, where Zephyr Teachout wrote an op-ed saying, Joe Biden's corrupt. And Bernie was like, whoa, whoa, hold on now. 
of course Joe Biden's corrupt. All the politicians are corrupt. And we, you could point to the exact donor money that he took and how it led to this vote or that vote. So Pardon? wasn't it too soft to say Zephyr, take, you know, now you're punished because you said something that's true. I'll start this conversation, uh, this part of it, with um, the way I approached the entire campaign at the outset of, of how I managed this campaign, feeling very strongly that the direction of this entire campaign should be reflected and follow Senator Sanders's judgment and guidance. I hewed a professional ethic with them, and I still maintain to this day, I will have disagreements with you, Senator, quietly, behind closed doors. We will have differences of opinion. When we march forward, we march forward as a team based on what you have decided, and you make the judgments. And you saw him on the debate stage with Joe Biden. You know where his bounds he felt comfortable with. I am willing to have a policy disagreement with my friend who I know has done things in the past that I don't like, and I'm going to willing to raise policy arguments, but I am not getting into a personal contest of adjectives, name calling. It was a, it was an ethical question for for Senator Sanders, and quite frankly, also how he viewed uh, Joe Biden. And uh, they have a history together, and I think it. I, and on that score, I think it meant a lot. Yeah, he likes him. He there's there's he an ethic him. there, right? And uh, there's you know, was there a hard. different dynamic? Because it seemed like there's a different dynamic with Hillary Clinton. They didn't have that history, oh, yeah. so he felt a lot more comfortable being a little, you know, more clear <laughs> in his critique. One of my favorite lines he's asked about this, and he's like, "Well, Hillary tolerated me. Joe Biden." Respects me, you know, and I think that that's right. I mean, I think Hillary Clinton t- tolerated. Do you think he respects him though? Yes. Does Joe Biden respect oh, Bernie? Uh, I have, uh, you know, yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. Here's the other thing that's kind of a counterfactual, but to your point about well, in the end, Joe Biden did turn out to be electable. Dude barely won mm-hmm. with the yeah. pandemic that killed half a million yeah, Americans. Yeah. Listen, so let's not give him too much. I mean, I, it was yeah. skin of our it teeth. It was difficult. After it was hard four years of mediocrity, and this guy's Hitler Senator and it's the end of the Republic. Threw and down, he barely scraped by. He I threw down three thirty electoral votes, and I was not close. Yeah, yeah. No, you're, no, you're right. And it's on the one hand, my my take on that. Yes, there's a conversation about Biden. To my mind, there's a conversation about Donald Trump and the what. Why did he do so well? And we have what, not really re- reflected on that. What, right. What, what, what is he think? doing right? What do you think? Well, in in being someone who shook up Washington, who comes in swinging every freaking day, like I'm going to fire the defense secretary, I'm going to go change the norms. He's signaling to people business as usual does not exist in Washington D.C. And for so many people who have been screwed by government, who feel cynical about government, they say. I just like what you're doing up there. I mean, there's a speaking to working class issues, the working class people and the ethic of what they wanted to see reflected in the government, which is shake that damn thing up. Yeah. And I'd say in addition to that, Crystal, I, you know, it, it was clear, no doubt in my mind that, you know, uh, Trump surged uh, at the end, right? Uh, he did close the gap and I think did well. And if you reflect on that time, it, it, he did not engage in a scientific uh, uh, sound course. Uh, he was holding rallies all across this country, going everywhere, subjecting people to mass crowds at a time when Joe Biden was not. And I just, uh, you know, the thing is, this is a controversial take, but I, I, just think about how working people hear and see that. Here's the president of the United States. He got COVID. He could sit in the White House in the Oval Office behind a desk and carry out this entire campaign from there. Instead, that guy hustles like nobody's business, gets on a plane, goes all over the damn country holding rallies late into like 1 a.m. in the morning. And what he's signaling to working people is like, you have to get off your butt and you have to go bag groceries. You have to go drive your Uber car. You have to go carry the mail. You have to go do your jobs, despite the fact that you got COVID. I do too. 
I'm going to go out there and get it, right? And so you think I the think, basement strategy was maybe not the smartest course? I think, right. it's, I think it's the only way he could have won, to be honest. Well, if he holds a rally, there's going to be eight people in the audience. No, he's going to be like, I mean, where to, am I? But to Crystal's point, uh, Crystal point now of the of the, of the the poll numbers, it, there's a, just think about how Senator Sanders would have campaigned. <laughs> you do think he's sitting in the basement? No, no chance in hell. No. You have to get out there he's and dynamic. connect with people to make the case and actually continue to carry out person-to-person organizing in safe and sound ways. I know it's very hard to do, but you got to you got to do it. You have to do it. And, and Senator Sanders, in fact, was the first national surrogate for Joe Biden who carried out an in-person rally during that campaign. We did it in New Hampshire. And and I think like the only major event, I remember when we did it with the with the Biden crew, it was the first time they had ever done a general attendance event during COVID. Mm. Think about that. It was Senator Sanders doing it on their behalf. And so they, we were figuring out together, okay, mm. well, how do we have general attendance event? Right. Oh, we had to, we literally wrote boxes into the grass and uh, on a, on a, on a, a slope in, in New Hampshire so that people could kind of sit in the box and, and listen to a speech. But that we were trying to break that ground to say, you got to get out there. You got to talk to people. Were there learnings from the Sanders campaign that um, inspired the work that you're doing now? Because as <laughs> entirely, we, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. as we've been discussing, I mean, this is something we both pondered on our shows. Is like, I mean, in the end, nothing was a match for the media just coming in and coalescing and telling yeah. everybody, "This is the guy. If you want to be Trump, this is the one." And the electorate was so primed to. I mean, they would have, I believe, literally voted for anyone. Klobuchar, completely content neutral. Yeah, Michael Bloomberg, who's like horrific on so many yeah. issues, didn't matter if they were convinced that. He was the one to beat Trump. So, you know, it seems to me like what you're doing now is filling in a sort of like important gap, building a new media institution that hopefully can be in place to sort of combat some of the narratives that are coming out of the media. And to tell the stories of working people that just are are, are often neglected and not appreciated. If you talk, think about people without a college degree, and I'm fortunate to have one, you know, I, I am aware that two-thirds of our workforce does not. And how do we speak to people to make them feel that you're not a loser because you got it? You, we don't look down on you. We don't like think say that you failed in some way. You We, we think of you as the center of the, of the work of the of the engine of our economy we have to provide opportunities for you to lift all of us up and and that is the power of bernie right bernie has educated me beyond a, 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 what you know anyone could do in a lifetime and uh, always appreciate you know the opportunity to, to not only get to know him uh, he's not god he is just a deeply honorable person and 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 going around with him he has a vision and a lens that infuses the work that we do now about how people see and perceive and receive politics in their lives. And that's what we're trying to reflect now. It's like, if, if, you're, if you're talking about people who are really struggling and hurting out there, like, just give them, a, give them the mic. Here you go. Talk. Tell us what your struggles and pains are and have our policies come from that pain rather than, as has been in the traditional Democratic Party for the past two or three decades now, uh, an elite-driven kind of credentialed, you know, Ivy League graduate, type people sit in a room and say, hey, here's the means-tested approach. Here's the targeted relief. Here's what those people... No, don't tell... Go out and listen to them and have them uh, 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 tell you what policies would help. So I just have a couple more questions for you. Um, One of them is, if it had gotten to a general election, what do you think the best strategy would have been for Bernie to handle Trump? 
Well, so we could separate that in a couple of different ways, politically and then, you know, values-wise. I mean, it's important to say that because Bernie Sanders is both of those, right? He's mm-hmm. both like, Correct. I think what he brings to the Democratic Party and just generally politics is like, hey, here's like, here's values. <laughs> like, like, if you think about what is he, it's, 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 it, it's, not, it's not, not, not the list of just Medicare for all, you know, it, that's too programmatic. That's too policy-minded. It's the values orientation behind that. It's a universal approach that says we all rise together and we have to invest in everybody together and ask everybody to, to be invested in the cause of lifting everyone together. That's why you get Medicare for all, canceling student debt for all, free tuition in public colleges for all, marijuana legalization for right, all, yeah. you know, clear, preserve saving us from climate change for all. You get the gist, right? We're for all. And I think that that kind of universalist approach is in values what he brings to a fight. Like, you're going to have a, a fight with Donald Trump on values terms, which if you think about our politics to this day, it tends to be not that, right? Let's turn the page, return to normal. Let's, let's uh, you know, maybe there's like a, you know, not, I'm not going to raise taxes on people who are 400,000. You get very programmatic uh, uh, and, and you don't connect viscerally with folks. And I think that's where Senator Sanders was all, he starts there. He starts with like connecting with you on a vision of an economy and a society. So I think you have that debate that you just really haven't had, or you have almost a philosophical vision orientation debate that you never really get in politics if you get Bernie versus Trump. But the second thing is politically, right? We get into how do you actually beat him? Well, then you obviously got the Rust Belt. You you start to figure out where Bernie does very well. And I do think he would have done very well in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, places that Biden ended up carrying. But even among Latino voters, you you, you look at the map and you start looking across. I don't know. I think he probably does pretty well in Texas. I don't know. I think he would have won Ohio. I think he would have won Ohio. Bernie would. Even if you start going down to Kansas and Iowa, it would have been interesting to see like how, what happens there. But then you go to Arizona where obviously Biden carries as well. It'd be interesting to see how his strength with Latino voters, because, you, you know, one of the stories of this election was that Latino voters started to move a little bit off of, you know, towards Trump, quite frankly. Especially yeah. um, men yes. without yeah. a college education. It wasn't just a story about Cubans. That, it was across the country. I do not believe that happens if, if Bernie Sanders is the nominee. And I don't know what, what happened, but I, I think it would have been very interesting. And I wish, you know, I regret to this day that we didn't ever get an opportunity. Well, I mean, see. in part, you all just took the time to invest in communicating with that community too, which well, the Biden campaign didn't. We had a lot of talented staff who did a lot of great work, but I will say that at the, I feel strongly about that it starts with Bernie. Like he has, there is, it is a person with a reputation, a brand on authenticity, a credibility that and speaks with values judgments in terms of you're an immigrant who came to this country, as my family did. You see in Bernie kind of the best of what you hoped for in America. Here's a politician who thinks and cares about all of us. That's what I thought America was like. Then I got here and I see like people greedily kind of jumping all over each mm-hmm. other, throwing elbows, like trying to push each other down. No, I want that. That's that's why I'm here. And I think he speaks to that, that a lot, a lot of, I think, Latinos, Asian Americans, Pakistani Americans yeah. saw in him. Yeah. You know, um, One thing I'm curious about is what do you think that the future is going to look like for a Democratic Party that does have now as its base almost every segment of elite society? Um, Oil and gas still with the Republicans, but basically, you know. And a lot of Wall Street is still with Republicans, too. Wall Street, since Obama, pretty much with the Democrats um, and certainly under Trump, moved even more towards Democrats. Silicon Valley, certainly media elites. So you have all of these uh, elite segments that are making up the funding and donor base. And then the base of the party that certainly Biden and the conventional Democrats are most responsive to is the sort of like affluent professional managerial class. 
what are the limits of a party that where that's the base? Because one of the things you started to talk about is how Biden's this kind of conventional politician, old school politician. Yeah. He responds to pressure. Yeah. Well, you're not going to be getting a lot of class based pressure that's right. yeah. from that coalition. Yeah. Uh, all fair points. Uh, and I agree with a lot of that. I um, I will start this by saying uh, one of the things that Bernie, I think, does well and has moved the conversation on is like, is, you know, if you think back to 15, 16, he just taught people that you can have a grassroots funded campaign. So he's like urged within the Democratic Party, like a even a, literally a pulse for grassroots ism that never really existed before. I mean, True. like the, you get into the debates and now you have to have like a fundraising threshold of grassroots support to even be on a debate stage. I mean, it was unconscionable. If you look back to prior to 2015, you have Barack Obama raising grassroots money, but it's, only, it's still not like a majority of his money, right? It's like, it, 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 no one thought it was possible. But if you look, flash forward from 15 to 2015 to now, how grassrootsism has affected this party in a positive way is, is that that is almost entirely attributable to to that success. So that's a, a positive outcome. I think the thing that Senator Sanders does you know, better than Joe Biden is he animates a friction. He understands that when you're doing things for working people, there is a fight and there's people who stand in the way. There are people who are trying to stop you from passing reconciliation. Call them out, say who they are, name them and go to war with them. Uh, and I don't think, you know, by criticism of uh, Biden administration, they don't animate that friction. I mean, by nature, by DNA, I think they they like to reduce the temperature of politics, mm -hmm. right? They like to say the decorum of normalcy shall return, competency in government shall reign. We will kind of execute on good policy. And I'm, I'm like I said, I speak highly of like, yeah, we'll move in progressive directions. But you're only, that's only half of it. You got to get out there and you got to animate what you're doing and why picking and naming People who are standing in the way, and I, it, it's 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 frustrating to me because Biden is carrying that fight. He is now the president of the United States, trying to pass a three and a half trillion reconciliation bill in which he wants to engage in making corporations who pay zero in taxes pay their fair share. Go out there and name them. Like get out there and do it. Like you're you're already putting forth the policy you believe in. It. You're you're trying to pass it. Animate that friction more. Uh, and yeah, so that's a frustration. Hey, Crystal, I would just say also that like yes, culturally. The elites that you just mentioned are largely with the Democratic Party now and, you know, monetarily to some extent as well. They're taking money. Um, the Democratic politicians are taking money from the donor class. But I don't want to, like, give Republicans uh, any semblance of a pass there because they're also just swimming in corporate money. Oh, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. No, I'm not saying they're like— you know, the party, the people right. I just want to like it. Yeah, I but wanted to I, make I, that clear. Trump was, was a plutocratic president. I mean, exactly. a billionaire's and, in and his drain the swamp shit was totally <laughs> fraudulent. Yeah. He was swimming in donor money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I actually, we interviewed for Breaking Points today, Thomas Frank, and he had just gone through the numbers of which industry elites were still with the Republicans in terms of by the donation <laughs> money. It's oil and gas. Um, the airlines, actually, <laughs> and casinos, but primarily because of Sheldon Adelson. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, and this is, by the way, it's not just an American phenomenon. This is something that's happening with left of center parties in developed countries around the world. They're becoming what this is the Thomas Piketty calls them the, the Brahmin party, right, mm -hmm. of this professional ma managerial class um, base, college educated, more and more elites mm -hmm. supporting the left of center party. And, you know, 
look, I'm all for coalition building, but it matters who's in the coalition, which to bring it back, I think is why it's really important the work that you're doing, because you're building a solidarity between working class people who may be voting in wildly different directions, right? right? But what, like, maybe can I turn it back to you? I would like, honestly, sincerely want your thoughts on this, but like, do you... I, I understand the failures of, of, of many Democrats on this and, and progressives across the globe, as you mm-hmm. rightly mentioned. Do you think the conservatives or Trump are doing something right? Or are they merely just the beneficiaries of progressive failure? You see what They're I'm just saying? liars. They're, They're it, just better at it's theater. It's fake populism. But, yeah, they just go out there. Like, look at Josh Hawley. He's the perfect example. For a while, he got these, these accolades of being like, I'm for the $2,000 checks and I'm a populist on the right. And then, of course, you know, he ends up voting against the $15 minimum wage, for example. He supports right-to-work laws in these states that are anti-union. Yeah. He's not for the PRO Act. So in his actual voting record is abysmal, but he's using populist rhetoric. So I would, I would say, I think you're... Absolutely right about all of that. But there's also this very, like, the liberals have become the the scolds of the school marms. They scold, right. And so, like, you may be a well-intentioned working class person who doesn't have all the lingo right. Right. And you feel like you're just getting nothing but scorn and contempt from these people. I agree with that And it really isn't so much a policy thing. It's a cultural thing. Because let's also face it, like— People are conditioned to expect nothing from D.C. Right. So like at least they don't hate me and scold me yeah, all the time. Yeah, they're like, well, right, at least yeah. these people don't look down their nose at me. Now, the truth is that the Republican Party does do. treat them with <laughs> yeah. complete contempt. Right. In a different but they're way. better at masking it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you right. put some? I, I agree yeah. with it, but let's put some meat on that for some people. Like, what do you see as the types of things that Democrats do that sound and feel like they look down, like you're being looked down upon? Yeah. If you focus way more time on social issues than you do on economic issues. Mm-hmm. That alone does it, because social issues by their very nature are alienating. Right. Now, the, the the thing that we haven't touched on yet, but I know you probably agree with, is that um, the right wages the culture war all the time as well. You know what I mean? It's just a, it, from the opposite perspective. They, they'll they talk about doctors. Like, think about when they were doing the first uh, COVID relief package under Biden. The right didn't talk about it at all. And on Fox News, they were talking about Dr. Seuss all day. And like, and and that was strategic because they knew they couldn't win on the battlefield of look at these economic policies they're getting through now. So they just changed the conversation to something else. Yeah, I mean, you can see like the Hillary Clinton de- deplorable comment is a perfect example, right? right? There is a sense that I think is justified that these people feel that they know better, and sure they'll come and they'll try to win my vote if I happen to be in a swing state, but mostly. They view us as voting against our interests. They think we're too stupid to really have a say in governance. And, you know, this really, uh, this was part of my sort of disenchantment with the Democratic Party when I used to be much more of a cheerleader for the Democratic Party. When I lived in Kentucky, and Kentucky was a state that, you know, is a very interesting populist state, and politics are complicated, and they actually have a Democratic governor right now. But at the time, a Republican governor had just gotten elected. They for the first time in I don't know how long had elected a Republican legislature. All this bad stuff is happening, right? Like healthcare is getting taken from people. They're rolling back the Medicaid expansion. They're passing so-called right-to-work laws, et cetera. And when I would talk about that or when I would tweet about that, I would get this whole slew of like, well, fuck them basically because they voted the wrong way. (laughs) And I, so I think that people are not, are not wrong to feel that the party looks down their nose. And you even see this a lot in the media coverage too. I mean, you know, you talked about how there's a need for 
the sense of solidarity, especially during a pandemic. I mean, yeah. this isn't like a this look, people have personal responsibility within a pandemic, but media is much more interested in covering like a pool party in the Ozarks right. or celebrating the death of someone who didn't get vaccinated right. or saying like, we shouldn't. I, there was a doctor on MSNBC who said people who haven't been vaccinated shouldn't get health care. This from a party that supposedly cares about universal health care and health care is a human right, et cetera, et cetera. So when you see that type of language and talk and basically dismissing half of the country as irredeemable and racist and we should just like deplatform them and push them out of the public square, you know, it's not wrong to feel like maybe I don't see myself with these people and in their party. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, that, that's partisan brainworms. That's what mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, when you write off 50 percent of the country, I think it, some of the people voted for Obama and now you're like, they're I irredeemable. Know, yeah. We can right. never win them back. I mean, that's the other thing that drives me nuts. And I'm sure it does you as well. Like. Yeah. Democrats, when they lose a state like Iowa or Ohio, they're just like, well, those people must be bad now. Let's move on to Georgia or Arizona. Maybe there's better people there. Right. Rather than ever doing the self-examination right. that you were talking about of like, why did they move away right. from us? Did we have anything to do with that? Right. And I, I think in addition to all the things that you said, I'd add in that, you know, we are understood to be the government party. Right. And when you are the government party and government has let you down and you've experienced that for three decades, oh, uh, your jobs have gone away, but they'll be coming back. We promise you. You're, mm-hmm. There's going to be some climate jobs there for you. And you have experience in your communities. No, I, there's been just evaporation. Government has generally sucked for me. And now here comes like some other people telling me it's going to work. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You, you, that's That's what you guys believe. I'd rather go with a lot of these folks who who were basically saying, now nah, you know, yeah. we don't There's believe it. Of- you see the yo-yo effect in U.S. politics a lot where it's just like, all right, they vote for Democrats. Are you going to help me? Oh, you didn't. I'll vote for Republican. Are you going to help me? Oh, you didn't. I'll vote yeah. for a Democrat. There's a lot of that, like— I think there's you know, also a lot of back and forth. nihilism where people course, feel yeah. like since the government's not going to deliver, at least I can have this asshole who's just, like, pissing everybody off that I hate. And, and one of the—this gets to the this gets to the project entirely— because what, what we overlook when we get into the government is that we, we put a lot of scrutiny rightly on government and we overlook corporate capture. Right, yeah. Corporate capture of government, but corporate capture of our economy. Mm-hmm. And we do not hold them to the right, same right, that's right. rigor of analysis and say, what the hell are you doing? What, what, what promises did you make? How are you uh, appropriately dealing with your workers? We, we, you know, we have got built in the psyche, oh, we must hold government accountable if they said they were going to do something, they didn't do something. Yeah, yeah, great, great. What about the corporation that said they were yeah. going to keep jobs here and then the left? And they're, not even, and they're not even... Tax breaks for them? Why they get the tax break? Oh, are we angry about that? We should be. Right. And who animates that? Literally nobody. Yeah, the corporation isn't even nominally accountable to the people, or at least the government in name, okay, I can vote somebody out in the next few years or whatever, where the corporation it's just tyrannical by its nature. There's yeah. a person at the top who's telling me what to do all the time. And you see Amazon or any other company, Google, come into a community, take the tax break, vulturize it, and say, hey, you, you will cater to me. And you don't. Th- and if they, if anyone gets angry, they oh, ang- get angry at that local politician. Right. Maybe. He's yeah. corrupt. <laughs> I can't believe he took the money. Yeah, yeah, sure, that. But like you guys, yeah. you guys are controlling the strings of how this community functions. You know, I happen to have, I used to live in the part of the country, the congressional district that has moved the furthest right the fastest. Um, In uh, Ohio, East Liverpool, Ohio is where I used to live. And it's such a classic story that, you know, you saw time and again on the campaign trail. I mean, this is an area that was devastated by NAFTA and other bad trade deals. And um, used to be East Liverpool in particular used to be like the pottery capital of the world, make cups and dishes and whatever. That all went overseas 
a while, or 50s, 60s. Then you had a steel mill in the next town over, 10,000 good union, middle-class jobs. You know, people were earning a steady living. That all over went overseas in the 80s and the 90s. And so, yeah, people now it's, you know, struggling with addiction and poverty and all of those things that are um, common stories in small town or small city in place after place after place. And so people just feel abandoned. They oh. feel pissed off. They feel abandoned. They feel looked oh. down upon. They feel used. They feel like politicians come to their town because it used to be a swing area, you know, mm-hmm. come to their town and lie to them and tell yeah. them what they want to hear and then go on their merry way. So um, I do think that the Republican Party here and probably, you know, I know less about the the right of center parties or populist right parties around the world, but I think they sort of feed on that nihilism and say, look, at least we can be assholes and overturn mm-hmm. the apple cart and piss off the people that you hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but it's all in rhetoric only. That's the, yeah. that's the reality. That's all it is. Yeah. Of course, I know you appreciate this with kids. Like I was recently watching some old Mr. Rogers and I was thinking about some of what you just said about, there used to be a segment in Mr. Rogers, a detour here, but that he would do these little segments where he would go into and show you how a crayon is made. I remember this remember really it? well. And it yeah. would be made in America and you would see the workers and he would teach you. And I was like, I was reflecting on some of these recently. I'm like, they, every, I bet you could go through every one of those episodes and they're all gone. You know, like, oh, here's how a, a pot That's is made true. and here's how a crayon is made. Here's mm-hmm. how this thing is made. Oh, he's and, based in Pittsburgh too. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. Treasure. Well, yeah. We really appreciate oh, the work wait. that you're doing. You oh, got, no, I got I got one more question okay. that I wanted to get I'm to. Here for you guys. All right. So, um, I, you and I worked together. We got Bernie on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Oh yeah. Then, thank you for your help on that. Well, and, maybe thank you for my help on that. No, what no, I was going to ask no, you is no. the backlash. So there was yeah. this no, backlash no. that happened as a result of it. Yeah. What do you make of it? What do you make? Do you think it was performative outrage? Fake outrage? Was it just because? People in the elite media don't like Rogan, and do you regret any of the, it or what? Uh, the, now, you know, the, the, I turn this into philosophical, philosophical conversation about my school of politics. I'll, I'll just offer my point of view on this, <laughs> and, and I appreciate other people have different points. My point of view is where I'm engaged in the art of, uh, of persuasion. I am That is why I'm in this. I have been always motivated by injustices in our society. I want to do something about those injustices. And so when I see people who don't agree with me, I want to reach out and figure out both why they disagree, what can I do to persuade them to agree with me. And so, you know, both in going on Fox News town halls, going on conservative podcasts, going on, you know, talking to Joe Rogan, I see opportunities, and I wish there were more of them, to go talk to people who don't already agree with you. And we did a lot of talking to people who agreed with us on the campaign. We'd hold a bunch of rallies, go talk to people. And, and in the center, I felt strong. Like, where are the avenues where you can have an honest and real conversation just about the issues that you care about, not assuming and anticipating that the other person might fully agree with you, but just would give you a platform to be able to have that conversation. And to his credit, Joe Rogan, if you go back and listen, please, I urge everyone to go listen to the podcast, gave a wonderful platform to us to at least have an honest and thoughtful conversation. The center said one of my favorite things during the entire, entire campaign, during that conversation with uh, Joe Rogan, when, when he's talking about how, you know, corporations get away with uh, essentially not paying anything in taxes, uh, Rogan's like, uh, but why? Why do they do that? They, that should be illegal. And Bernie says, Bernie says Joe, it's it's legal because they write the laws. Right. And it was yeah. a beautiful moment, right? Yeah. It was like, exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it was like these, those beautiful moments come because like you're engaging with someone who doesn't already necessarily agree with anything. And that's that I believe strongly. In. Well, it was really weird to me watching it from the outside. It, it was really interesting to me because Joe Rogan was very clearly like, I like Bernie. 
I'm signing on to Bernie. You know, he gave him like a sort of a tepid endorsement along like, the way. I'll probably vote for him. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's I'll like probably as strong as it went. Now, <laughs> yeah, we lean into like, but, he's going to vote for us. Yeah. But so that's Joe Rogan, the number one podcaster in the country, by the way, saying, I'm with this guy, Bernie. And then somehow it was twisted as if like Bernie had signed on to every joke Rogan had ever made. Yeah. So where he said some trans thing in like Which, 1999 and it's like, oh my God, how can Bernie support that? Bernie didn't say anything about supporting that. It was Rogan who said, I'm signing on to what Bernie's doing. And the strategically, we talked about this, Kyle, the, the, the hardest part of our campaign, the, the thing that we always felt we had to overcome was electability, that we could beat Donald Trump. And the way in which we wanted to project that was not only like lots of different opportunities. Every time I could see an opportunity to do that, I wanted to seize it. There it was. Yeah. Like, what, what better example? Here's a guy who's likely a Trump voter, who voted, I think, voted for Trump last time. Well, no, what he like, did, he said he would prefer Bernie over Trump, but then when it was Biden, he was basically no, like. No, no, I meant last time in 16. Oh, no, I don't think he voted. Oh, he didn't vote. Okay. No, he, so, well, vote Gary Johnson, and he voted for Gary Johnson. Gotcha. So here's a person who's <laughs> essentially not a progressive. Like, <laughs> a political, not progressive. <laughs> right. right. And here you, you're converting and persuading people. That was the that, that was what Bernie was doing. And uh, can I, get, I, I really feel strongly about this because of the Bernie bro, bro narrative and all that stuff that's out there. One of the things that I got angry about and still get angry about, is we've lost touch with true populism, right? Of like mm-hmm. people getting out of their seats and getting enthusiastic and 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 believing in something. And when you have that, when you have true populism, when you have true people who are like, who just love and support an agenda and a person and Bernie Sanders, it can be messy. Guess what? Some of those people have not been traditional Democratic voters. Guess what? They don't haven't worked for Democratic politicians. They haven't been engaged in politics some for a long period of time. Some of them have tweeted controversial some things. Of them have the said, <laughs> some, some of them have say. said things that you don't agree with. Some of them <laughs> act in ways that you don't always like. But that is the messiness of true populism. And I, I, I you know, in trying to usher in a campaign, I would try to explain this to all the reporters who would be very angry about, oh, aren't you going to come down this? I'm like, all we can do is lead by example of the values of Bernie Sanders but also appreciate that people are coming from different walks and different places in life to support this campaign. And I want to res- I want to both say these are the values of Bernie, but also respect and appreciate that you might be coming from wherever you might be coming from. And that's how you reach out and expand the base of a Democratic Party, which Bernie was doing better than any politician that I'm aware of. And yet he would frequently be condemned for it, right? Frequently. And it read just the comments me off. Rogan, the comments are like, I thought this guy was crazy. I thought this guy yeah. was a hardcore communist or what. And now I'm listening to him talk. I agree with everything he says. And this is from people who were nominally apolitical or leaning right or whatever. And Bernie was convincing them in real time on the number one podcast in the country. And the media looked at that and said, that's unacceptable. That's, that's a, a, problem, that's a bad, bad thing. thing. There's right. a problem yeah. there. Not, well, not that there's an upshot. Yeah. Oh, hey, look, well, he may, maybe he might be better positioned to feed Donald Trump. Look, he, he's being able to persuade millions of listeners of Joe Rogan in addition to Rogan himself. Right. I also think this gets back to, like, why is the Republican Party making gains with certain segments of um, working class Americans is, like, the Republicans, the the right and the right commentators are a lot smarter about this stuff. Rogan says one thing that they that agrees with them, and they're they like, it out, "He's ours." Run articles, you know, yeah. just like mm-hmm. us. He he thinks like we do. He can say a thousand progressive things, and no and one the pays left never any goes. Attention. Look what he said. It's the a left wing thing. They care about is when he says something, you know, stupid Nominally about right, vaccines yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why wouldn't you want to affiliate with and claim? 
the person who is the number one podcast it's just in smart the world, politics. Yeah, it's just intelligent politics. Incredibly popular and has, you know, a group of people who are in his audience who may be persuadable, who may, you know, see themselves in some of the things that you're saying. It, it's to me that sort of thinking is so counter to, you know, to actually building a coalition, actually yes. being able to move policy that's, forward and get have a, a, you know, universal uh, health care or free college or any of the things that we believe in. If you talk about this project where you're trying to engage with more perfect union, you're trying to do persuasion, which you're in, in, in some sense what we're trying to do is break a bubble for some people who may not all just experience the life of somebody who isn't completely like themselves. Mm. Yeah. May not have worked at McDonald's, may not have worked at, at an Amazon warehouse, may not like know what that's like. Yeah. Break the bubble, empathize, see it, understand it, respect it. They're coming from a different place. That's, you got to have that. You get, remember, we, if you're engaged in the political sphere, you're engaged in persuasion. I want to believe you got to urge more people to support your perspective. And I, it, ha- it pains me when you get kind of chastised and run over the grill just for, um, you know, trying to speak to people who may not already agree with you. Yeah. Guys, go subscribe to More Perfect Union. You do, if you don't, you're missing out. I mean that. Follow them on Twitter. Subscribe on YouTube. If you're able, um, send some money. Grassroots funded organization doing, I mean, just... The most important work, yeah. Stories that are nowhere else in the media. There is a gigantic hole, and thank you for doing the work to try to fill it. We are part of the fabric that you guys very much are a part of, and we would not exist if you weren't also able to help us and lift us. So thank you, and and please support these wonderful. (laughs) You're very kind. I'm just an asshole with a microphone, (laughs) but thank you very much. I appreciate that. Great to have you, Faz. We appreciate your time. That was Faz Shakir. Um, really interesting talking to him. Again, the work they're doing is so good. It's so important. I just cannot say enough good things about it. It's actually kind of astonishing that it didn't exist already. Just on-the-ground videos of people engaged in labor strife, just working-class people actually struggling and talking about their lives in a way that is um, important and empowering. I'm curious, though, was there anything from the conversation about the Bernie campaign that sort of surprised you or that you didn't already know? Um, I, I mean, I guess I was a little surprised at the answer of... Like, we did everything right, looking back and proud of everything we did. Maybe there were one or two minor mistakes. Because I'm, I'm generally self-critical in some ways, and if I, if I was in his shoes, I do feel like I probably would have been a little more... So, like, really, seriously, really, where did we go wrong? Because after the first three, when Bernie basically won the first three, at that point, if you lose it, you gotta be self-critical. Like, you have to really look inward and figure out how could we have steered this ship in the right direction. And so I got the sense that he really almost felt like it was kind of fate. Like, our, there the die was we cast, there's nothing we could do. I'm really not of that belief. I'm not of that opinion. I think there was more that could have been done. Um, I don't think he made the right arguments. I don't think um, he was as aggressive as as he could have been and should have been. I don't think he hammered away the right way on the electability argument. He's right on the overall picture that the electability thing was the thing that cost him the election, but yeah. there wasn't much of a response. There wasn't much of a, you know, strategic rolled out plan on that front. And that really cost him. You know what I kept thinking about is I remember talking to you on the phone the day that um, I can't remember exactly what point it was in the campaign, but it was when things were looking pretty dire. And Bernie did a press conference about something. And they asked him, do you think Joe Biden can win? And he was like, yeah, I think he can win. And I was like, what are you doing? No, I, I really <laughs> I really thought that was the moment 
where all hope was lost. Yeah. Right in that moment, because I was like, that's the whole ball game. That's the whole ball game. Not only can you not answer the way you did, it was an imperative that you answered the opposite way. Even if you think Joe Biden can win, you're supposed to say, no, Joe Biden cannot win. We ran this experiment in 2016. Hillary Clinton has the same politics. She has the same record. And look what happened there. She was the safe candidate. Everybody thinks Joe is the safe candidate. Well, guess what? You're looking at the safe candidate. The safe candidate is me. You cannot vote for Joe Biden. That's a second term of Donald J. Trump. Yeah. That's what you have to say. If you don't say that, what are you doing? Well, it was also kind of interesting to me that Faz seemed to sort of agree with the voters' perception that Joe Biden was electable. Now, he thought Bernie was electable, too. But he said to us, look who's in the White House. They were right. right. Yeah. Joe Biden could get elected. But that ignores the fact that he had to have everything basically go right for him and everything go wrong for Trump and Trump to be a colossal idiot who, you know, helped to get half a million Americans killed in order to just barely squeak through Mm -hmm. in order to win. So if Bernie made that case at that point of, guys, it's this is not a good idea. We've run this playbook before in 2016 and we know how it comes out. That would have been completely correct analysis. And and I'm listen, the one criticism of secular talk that's accurate is that I'm repetitive. But you know where that's a massive benefit in politics. And he should have said that Oh, anytime he's in front of a microphone, he needed to say that. Yeah. And he needed to be aggressive. He needed to be forthright. He needed to make that the duh position where if you ask anybody, who's more electable? They're like, well, obviously Bernie, because we did the thing with 2016 with Hillary. You need to make it reflexive for people. Yeah. Make that connection. Right. You know, almost like branding for for a product. You know, like well, McDonald's, I'm loving it. Like, you know, there's it's got to be a thing where it's Pavlovian with people. Especially when you know that the media is going to be doing that exact same thing with the opposite of that narrative. Right. So <laughs> you know, they're going to be them- telling people all in, over and over and over, you got to go with the moderate. You got to go with the establishment. You got to go if you want to beat Trump. You got to go with this dude. You have to make your own case and then make them debate your premise. Because mm-hmm. if they're debating your premise, they're fighting on your grounds. Because they're repeating your arguments. Yeah. Even if they're uh, repeating it to disagree with it, doesn't matter. It's like when Richard Nixon was like, I'm not a crook. People were like, is he a crook? He just said he's not a crook. Is he a crook? So it's the same. If you make the media debate that, is it Bernie or is it Joe? Just by by nature of the fact that they're debating it, by virtue of the fact that they're debating it, it helps Bernie. It would have helped Bernie, but he needed to repeat it all the time. He gave the exact wrong answer. But listen, overall... um. Foz is an incredible guy. I think he really tried his absolute hardest in that position. Oh, I think no man- doubt about managing that. a personality like Bernie is probably nearly impossible because I, he has very strong he, convictions. Yes. And um, he inched up to sort of indicating that, look, frankly, some of the limitations in terms of how hard we could go against Joe Biden, those came from Bernie. All of and, them came from Bernie, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And so— yeah, maybe if it was me and I was the can and I could totally drive that messaging, maybe he would have done something else. But you have a limitation there in terms of, look, Bernie didn't like Hillary Clinton. So he felt a little more comfortable taking the gloves off there to a certain extent. And he had a personal relationship with his friend Joe. And that right. really did color his ability to level a, a biting critique that would actually land. Because, you know, the whole time, even though you had the media 
Kamala or Amy or Pete. Remember when they were trying to be like, Pete is the front runner after <laughs> Iowa and everything was like, what are you talking about right Pete now? Is the front runner. But it was always obvious that the only other person that um, anyone other than like liberal white people liked <laughs> was Joe Biden. You know, he was the only one who ever had any kind of support outside of just affluent white suburban liberals. Um, so it was clear that, and look, he was the former vice president, Barack Obama's bestie and all that stuff. It was clear that Biden was going to be the most formidable opponent and they were never able to really make an effective argument, really land a glove on him in a way that would, in a way that would hurt. And how would it hurt that electability piece is really the only thing that people cared about. I think they're right that, you know, the past record for a Democratic base that didn't really land because at the end of the day, yeah, they liked Bernie better on the policy. They knew Bernie had been better throughout his career on policy. But the the top issue came down to who do we think can beat Trump? And they bought the median-made narrative about Biden over, you know, this sort of like vague illusions and loose case that was made for Bernie on that front. I think policy can matter, but it's all in how you present it. And the way Bernie presented it was difference of opinion. It wasn't like complete corrupt stooge of people who are trying to fuck you versus me fighting for you. If he had put it in that stark of a, of a way, yeah, maybe it's a different story. But you're right. When you present it as just differences of opinion, then people could fall back on something like electability and say, I, oh, you I have honestly, disagreements. I honestly think the way that this was all set up and how much the Democratic base had bought into the idea that Trump was truly like Hitler's second coming and an existential threat to the republic, I don't think that they were prepared to vote on anything other than really um, than really electability. And that varied some by age. I mean, that was partly when you asked younger voters, do you care more about electability or the issues? They were more likely to say the issues. But overall, in terms of who's voting in a Democratic primary, their end-all, be-all was who do we think can beat Trump? And so they turned themselves on these little like mini horse race pundits and then sort of parroted whatever Chris Eliza was telling them on CNN. I think it's undeniable that in this election, electability was the most important thing. Yeah. I think it's not at all a road we, anybody should go down to insist that ultimately policy was irrelevant or didn't matter to voters. I don't think that's true. So what explains the fact that they liked Bernie more on policy and they voted for Well, Bernie? I just told you. I said elect. it's undeniable that electability was the most important factor in this election. Yeah. I would just not use strong, too strong language. You wouldn't to say, say that was like the policy only is thing. irrelevant. Yeah. No, it's the way that Bernie presented it was we have a difference of opinion. So voters thought they have a difference of opinion and that guy's more electable. Yeah. If Bernie was more like, I'm the only electable one, he's not electable. And by the way, these aren't differences of opinion. War crimes are not differences of opinion. Supporting an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us and destroying a region of the world is not a difference of opinion. Outsourcing millions of American jobs with your with a casual nonchalant vote you took is not a difference of opinion. Spying on all Americans is not a difference of opinion. This is somebody who's a corrupt stooge of the military industrial complex in Wall Street and the donor class, and I'm not. I'm fighting for you. If you present it like the policy matters and I'm more electable, then the policy mattering part is just as big of a picture of what would have been a win as the other part, as the electability part. Mm, I'm not sure that it would have in this well, case. Well, then, because, okay, you have a well, little bit more of a darker view of voters than I do. Well, I think you can I make think, it so policy matters. I just That's think the point. 
the Democrats have, and this isn't the first time, but very good at persuading their base that, you know, you can say all that stuff like there's the past records and here's a war criminal and he's corrupt and all of that. But I really think they were prepared to vote for anyone to get, you know, the Cheeto Hitler out of office. I agree, of office. Crystal. We're having two separate conversations. We're having a conversation about this election and the way it went down mm-hmm. and elections in the future. Yeah, in general. Voters, it's but, not stagnant. Voters well, are fluid. It's not stagnant. Yeah, I, of course. And I, but I do think this, there's a danger to allowing these narratives that um, the Democratic Party and the media persist that make it so that voters feel like it is existential. Either they pick the candidate that the media says is electable or it's the end of of the country as we know it. And um, Trump was an incredible villain and very persuasive to people, uniquely sort of persuasive because there was substance there to the critique that this guy is actually an existential threat. So that just made an extraordinarily difficult landscape for Bernie to break through with a policy message over an electability message. Yeah, he uh, he lost handily on the electability front. And that is ultimately what cost him the election. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. I just think it's you need to make it a project to make the Democratic voter trust the media less, just like the Republican Mm -hmm. voter is like, fuck the media. The Democratic voters got to be like, damn, are they fucking lying to me? And they're not really there yet, according to the polls. I mean, some of them are. I'd argue like the actual far left base is, but run-of-the-mill Democratic voters generally trust the media. They've become more trusting in the media, which right. is so sad. But that uh, it's a good cherry on top to the end of the conversation here, though, because that brings us full circle to not just what we do, because obviously we lean also on the opinion side as well, but more perfect union, which, in my opinion, is sort of like straight reporting, they, investigative reporting yeah. on labor issues around the country. And so uh, I, this is what CNN should be doing. This is what MSNBC should be doing. This is what all the big media outlets should be doing. And they're not doing it. And it took Faz to step in to fill this giant gaping hole in the media landscape. And uh, it's really important. Everybody go subscribe to More Perfect Union. I can't say it enough. I'll continue to cover their stuff on my show. I know Crystal will on your show. Probably have people from More Perfect Union on your show as well. Yeah. Uh, It's really important, guys, because, again, you know, I say this all the time, but when it comes to the media landscape, oftentimes it feels like we are looking around at all these giant existential issues and problems and we're standing in front of a tsunami with our hand up like stop (laughs) that's not enough it's not enough like come on up and at them all systems go we all gotta all hands on deck we gotta work here we gotta work we gotta fight back against all the misinformation and disinformation and falsehoods and incorrect narratives and it starts with you know supporting outlets like this and watching the stuff and sharing the stuff because it needs to get out there well and it's funny because um they really came out of nowhere for me, like Faz hadn't reached out to Same, he didn't reach out to me. To either one of us to say, Hey, I'm doing this thing. Which is surprising. I thought he maybe would have reached out to me if he did something like this. So I started, you know, their stuff started popping up in my Twitter feed and of course it was phenomenal and start covering it on um, breaking points. And then I was like, Who is behind this? Like, where did this come from and what's going on? And that's when we looked and it was like, Oh, it's Faz's thing, but we You had, looked, I didn't look, you yeah, looked, and I then you looked. told me, and I was yeah, like, oh, I was like, really? I had no idea. I know idea. this guy, I'm friends with him. <laughs> yeah, that this is what he was up to, but it all kind of made um, sense ultimately. I think it's extraordinarily important what he's doing. Absolutely. I think it's extraordinarily important. I think it's wildly different in every respect from what the media is doing. I mean, ultimately, look, it's diametrically opposed. The 
mainstream media, whether it's Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, their whole business model is let's pick on each other, let's hate each other, and let's ignore what the Democratic or Republican elites are doing or what the financial elites are doing. Let's just hate each other. His project is fundamentally about solidarity. And so there's nothing more important he could be engaged in. So could not recommend it highly enough. I'm so glad that he's out there doing the work that he's doing with a phenomenal team, great reporters who are on the ground, elevating the voices of actual working class people in the struggles they're facing every day. That's right. So everybody go subscribe to More Perfect Union. And of course, if you like this show, you could always support us um, on Substack. $5 a month gets you the videos of the interviews uh, a day early. And then, of course, uh, if you don't subscribe on Substack, everybody has access to the interviews, the audio version, the audio podcast of the interviews a day later on Saturday. But, of course, we uh, we love you deeply if you <laughs> support this show. We don't take any money from any advertisers at all. So this is all, you know, small dollar funded, $5 a pop at a time. So uh, support us if you can, guys. Really appreciate it. And, you know, the video is a nice little perk as well. And as we mentioned before, big guest next week, Russell Brand. You want to be, want to be ready and subscribed so you get that whole video in advance and all of that good stuff. Yes, definitely. That's going to be really fun. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one. All right, guys, we love you. We'll see you next week. Bye.